Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the podcast that covers horror movie franchises, one movie in one episode at a time. After a bit of a summer break, so I could gallivant across the pond for a bit, we're back in Texas. Things are looking a little different this time around. And this could be one of the most fascinating movies we cover because it is low-key one of the most important genre movies of the past 20 years, just in terms of like shaping where horror went for about a decade. We are here to talk about the 2003 Michael Bay produced Marcus Nispel directed Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They said it couldn't be remade and then they remade it anyway. But I am not here to talk about this one on my own. I couldn't do that. Nobody would want that. We've brought some friends and esteemed panelists along the way. First up from the Movies for Life podcast and columnist for Bloody Disgusting and Melora Val- uh, Vallum. We have Brian Kuiper. Brian, how are we? Doing good. The buzz is back, right? The buzz is back. Absolutely. <laughs> and you're here with your Wes Craven t-shirt on. So I we're am. In the mood, you, know you know, very appropriate for this, of course. <laughs> Being that Steven Spielberg directed Poltergeist, I kid. <laughs> had to take that dig. <laughs> we also have from the Losers Club joining us once again. And it's been a little bit, so I'm super happy to have her back. Rachel Reeves, how are we doing tonight? Hey, I'm doing great. This is my first um, first time stepping foot into this uh, Texas franchise conversation, and I'm really excited. It's for this one. It's hot. It's sweaty. We are super glad to have you on. So excellent. And finally, we have joining us again. She will only join us for movies that are titled The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That is in her contract. <laughs> that is what she demands. But we have from the um, Bodies of Horror podcast, Nicole Goble. Nicole, making her first like appearance as a regular going forward, I believe, too. So, sure. Nicole, how are we tonight? We are doing really, really good. I'm really excited to talk about this remake. Excellent. We are excited. So I want to gather, well, before we talk about the movie proper, as always, I like to kind of gather our initial thoughts about this one. And I think this one's going to be fascinating because it's, um, you know, we don't cover a ton of remakes on this show. I mean, even though we've done the big franchises, the remakes usually come at the very end of like covering a whole series. And this time we are right at the midpoint. So it's a pretty fascinating time. And it's also the movie, I think, you know, that's credited for kicking off the whole remake phrase. So phase. So first, Nicole, what are your initial thoughts on this film? And when did you first see it? Well, I first saw it when it came out in theaters. I went by myself to a Sunday matinee because 
no one that I knew wanted to see it. They were like, oh, it's a remake. No. And I didn't really have a lot of horror, like, friends in college. So, and it was really, like, when I went to college was really the first time I lived near a movie theater. So, um, I went on a Sunday afternoon and I was actually pretty excited. I am a huge fan of the original, one of my favorite films of all time, and was really impressed by the trailer that had come out. I thought it was really perfect um, and kind of setting the right tone. And so I was really excited about what it would bring uh, to the table in terms of the franchise. And I liked it. And it's a film that only I think has aged better. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So you were in, taken in with it from the get go and it's only improved like a fine wine. Yeah. Or I mean, pickled eyeballs since then. Exactly. I mean, I think it's one of those films that, I mean, even if it doesn't bowl you over the first time, the more that you go back to it, you're like, Oh, actually it's pretty good. It's doing some interesting things. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it's one I've gone back to you. Uh, quite a few times and yeah, it's just gotten better. Excellent. Very cool. Brian, how about yourself? Okay. Um, I gotta be honest. I almost backed out of this recording mm-hmm. earlier today after watching this movie. Um, because <laughs> I, I'm sorry to, and I, and I, and I know I am alone in this. I absolutely hated it. Oh my gosh, this is exciting. Hated hated this movie. Mm -hmm. This is this is the third time I've seen it. The first time I was kind of like, I don't like it. The second time I was like, eh. This time I had like a visceral just repulsion Mm -hmm. to everything that it was doing. I just could not stop. Damn really? It. Yeah. And I, and I, I, like I said, I, I was like, should I just like say, Hey Mike, I think I better back out of this one. Okay. It, you know? Um, but Mm-mm. if I'm anything, I'm man of my word, I'm going to pull through and I'm going to see if I can be, uh, persuaded okay. that my, my viewing of it was, uh, not, not what, was really going mm-hmm. on that, that, and, you know, or something. I don't know. I don't know. When was um, the first time you saw this? Oh, okay. I saw it, uh, when it first came out mm-hmm. on pretty soon after it came out on video. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know I must've rented it back when video stores were still a thing back in 2003, uh, or 2004 when it came out on video. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I, I something about maybe I don't know if it's the Michael Bay of it all. I, I don't know. I just it, it's it just kind of has a it, something about it. There there are things about it that I'm like, okay, that's interesting, um, but and I can see why people like it, but I I just struggle with it. I I gotta admit, and 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 I thought. This time was going to be different. I thought that this time, after I've seen more of the sort of 2000s remakes, that I was going to um, have a different reaction. But I'm afraid 
it was the worst ever for me this time. <laughs> okay. This is going to be fascinating because yeah. it's pretty rare yeah. that we have that on this show. It's pretty I, I rare. know. I know. And which is, which is why I kind of decided I, I, I want to, I want to follow through and, mm-hmm. but, but at the same time, I, I don't want to like piss on anyone's campfire, so to speak, sure. you know, cause I know people no, just love honestly. this movie. By I know, all means yeah. piss away, dude, like drop, <laughs> drop those trousers. In that, it, it's just fly. pardon, pardon that metaphor. Um, but um, it was just like, uh, I know people love this movie and I, I just was like, I don't. And- I'll say from like doing my (laughs) other show psychoanalysis, like when we have guests on and they pick their comfort horror movie, there are times where I'm like, I really don't like this movie. And I find those the most fascinating conversations to have because the talk is a lot more fun than the movie itself. And I come away with like, even if I'm like, I'm never going to watch like this full moon two. video game <laughs> i'll never watch troll 2 again um but i loved like talking about it sure. uh, yeah. when we yeah. actually got to talk about it so rachel how about yourself oh, this is gonna be a spicy conversation uh, i love I it but this is why it's exciting because from what i know about brian i have a feeling you were already attached to the original before you went into this one and this is true. Yes. So, okay. So here I am going to be uh, the counter to that as ah. I saw this one first. Okay. I saw this in the theater and this was, this was my senior year in high school. And it was about this time over the last, like high school was when I really started getting into horror. Um, it's not that I was ever like super shielded from it. It just wasn't what my family was into my dad was super into action stuff so Mm -hmm. like i still had tastes of it through like predator and rambo and that kind of thing but once um the local video store that was in a grocery store because i lived in a slightly rural community start getting started getting like vhs copies of like scream and i know what you did last summer and the faculty that's what kind of got me into it and so yeah, so I started going, we got a big fancy theater in town, and I remember going to see American Psycho, and that's where I kind of started my journey. So I saw this, and I knew there was an original, but I had never seen it, because at that period in time, I just didn't necessarily have access to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I really liked it. Like, I was excited about it. I didn't know much about the original, so take all that with a grain of salt, but I thought it was brutal. I thought everything about it was just, I had a lot of fun with it and it made me want to go back to the original. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what I think I'm excited to talk about just in its place in time and what it did for the larger picture. But it, it inspired me to dig deeper. Okay. Um, so yeah, we can leave it at that, but I'll say maybe give me a capsule like, you know, cause we can save it for the body of the show. But when you went back mm-hmm. and finally, and how much, longer was it after seeing this in theaters did you Um, watch the original well i bought the dvd so i think it it was a minute later it was like at least like a year until i like tracked it down Mm -hmm. just because those were the olden days you know and just (laughs) when you don't Mm -hmm. live in a major city and have access to things sometimes it takes a minute to find some things but uh yeah so but i 
it was it was really cool seeing that first and then seeing the original and just being like, oh, damn, like, I can't believe mm-hmm. like that was actually pretty brutal as well. Okay. <laughs> so, yes, so I was. I loved was the original. Yeah. Loved the original. It was thought it was incredible as well. Because I can see being a horror fan that grew up in this era, like the early 2000s, where it is like a lot more visceral and a lot mm-hmm. more explicit. And then going back and watching some of the originals and being like, I don't understand what the big deal is about these. Like, I like that's not me personally, but I can understand being of a certain age and feeling that way. Like I've totally. said, you know, I said on when we covered the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, as amazing as Halloween is, and it's one of the greatest movies of all time. Mm-hmm. I I could imagine putting that on for a sixteen year old in 2022 and have them being bored as fuck oh yeah i do i do feel really grateful that my family gave me an appreciation for just older cinema in general Mm -hmm. wasn't horror necessarily that we were watching but a lot of older films so i wasn't put off by the fact that it was a 70s Mm -hmm. film which unfortunately i do feel like some people get a little you know if it's an older decade of any year it's kind of some people can get a little like oh what is this <laughs> yeah what's this yeah. and i think that's what we'll talk about one thing this movie it, it lets you know it's a different era of filmmaking like it jumps right in with both mm-hmm. feet pretty mm-hmm. quickly so for myself like i did see this in theaters like right when it came out i remember seeing the trailer and being pretty excited for it like i'm like like wow that's a really good trailer i'm excited for this and my take on remakes especially when there are a lot of sequels is it doesn't matter if the remake is as good as the original because you know it's not going to in any way take away from the power of that original movie just like having a slew of lesser sequels doesn't Mm -hmm. take away from the original texas chainsaw like the fact that you know, Halloween resurrection exists doesn't make John Carpenter's <laughs> Halloween any less powerful of a right. movie. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. So it wasn't a matter to me of like, oh, this is going to hurt Hooper's movie somehow. And I remember when I saw it, I had just moved back to the Boston area after like a really bad work experience like where I went to manage like an audio video store out in upstate New York. It was an awful experience. I hated it. I kind of came back with like my tail between my legs and was not in the best headspace. Um, so I think that might have colored my experience watching the movie. Because when I first saw it, I can't say I hated it, but the reaction I had was kind of, what's the point? It was mm. kind of like, why does this exist? And I described it to being akin to like when you go to Taco Bell and they have these like 50 pound bags of ground beef hanging up. Imagine just like smacking one of those with a Louisville slugger for 90 minutes. And that's what this movie felt. like. That is harsh. It is. But I just couldn't get that image out of my head. And it wasn't like it was a horrible movie. It was just that like, right, right, right. Yeah. I, I, that's kind of how I feel. I see how well made it is, but mm-hmm. just oh, <laughs> I get I, I get what you're saying, Mike. I do. But I remember, like, well, even though I didn't like the movie a lot, 
oh, like the steel book is $5 on sale on DVD mm-hmm. for the two disc set. I'm going to buy that. And I remember we watching it and still not loving the movie, but like really liking all of the behind the scenes things and mm. the care that went into it. I'm like, all right, I like it a little more. And I kept like returning to it every few years. And it finally clicked over the past year. And it might have actually been the reason like rewatching and being like, you know what, it's time to cover this series. I'm like, I get what this movie is going for a little bit, or at least appreciate it. Um, And every time I've watched it, it's gone up a little bit in my estimation. And it's not a classic. It's not. I think that it gets lumped in with a lot of the remakes and it's the Mm -hmm. kind of gets blamed, kind of like how Scream gets blamed for a lot of watered down slashers of the late 90s where you have a very good movie that gets pulled down by some other ones that aren't quite as good overall. So, all right. All right, well, let's talk a little bit and I don't have a ton on the background of this one just because like it's relatively new and it was just a really kind of like straightforward. We own the rights to the name of this movie. Let's make it. Um, Mm -hmm. But when I say the name platinum dunes, that means a lot of things to a lot of different folks. And I guess what does the name platinum dunes mean to you? as a horror fan, Mr. Kuiper. Well, for me, it's just sort of, I just think slick remakes, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and some of them are good and some of them aren't. Uh, that's generally what I come to with it. Um, cause you know, there's, I think the Friday the 13th remake is fine. Um, I'm in the minority also on preferring the original Hills have eyes to the remake. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people prefer the remake, but I'm a Wes Craven guy. So I'm, I'm just really have dug into that original movie and, mm-hmm. and just latch onto that. But I think it's a terrific film. You know, um, but then they also did Nightmare on Elm Street. So I'm just kind of like, yeah, I, I, I feel like it, there's just this unevenness, but they're mm-hmm. they're slick. Most of them are well made. Um, and I don't like most of them. <laughs> I'm sure. sorry to say, <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's just me. And um, that's they, they sort of set that tone in that era the, of horror, though, for the early 2000s was mm-hmm. just um, this kind of, of thing, you know, that it had some of the sheen of something like scream, but also, um, was grittier and darker and trying at least to reach back into the sort of visceral, um, element found in the originals. Yeah. How about yourself, Nicole? Well, I am a, huge fan of the purge series so Mm -hmm. i think of the purge series a quiet place um i think that there's some real quality films in their mix but yeah i also think that um you know this film in particular is really responsible for the aughts remake Mm -hmm. blitz and so I think it's really hard to divorce, you know, Platinum Dunes from that in and of itself. So I find that really, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, even though I'm like, oh, there, there's actually some stuff I really like with them. 
I also see them kind of piling on a lot of let's just make movies to make movies mm-hmm. um, at that time as well. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't realized that the quiet place and uh, purge was part of it. So that, yeah. that's an, that colors my sort of image of it a little bit. I guess I don't think yeah. of them with those though. And I think when the, when a quiet place like hit mm-hmm. and became this massive success, that's when platinum dunes. And even though they had not put out a remake since the Elm street, reboot and this was eight years after that quiet places eight years after that they said officially like we're out of the remake business like we're just Mm. going to do original horror going Mm -hmm. forward what about yourself rachel i mean look they are no dark castle right (laughs) like (laughs) i mean if if i had to pick one I might go Dark Castle. I'm mm-hmm. so, like they're they were doing very similar things, but I think that there was just a different um, sheen to it. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, one might call it I don't know uh, Robert Zemeckis and Joel Silver. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but you know I think that they were part of that. But I, you know, they, it's funny now that you're thinking about or like now that you're talking about this because it's kind of a similar thing. Like they started out doing a bunch of remakes, then they went into some originals that had some like hit or misses and they're still doing it. Right. We just got a new orphan movie like, you know, Mm -hmm. last week or whatever. So it's yeah, it's very interesting to kind of I never thought about comparing the two, but there are there is a really similar trajectory. But I do like some of these films. So it's funny. Like I also don't hate the the Friday the 13th remake. Sorry, Mm -hmm. I don't hate the Amityville horror remake. I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street. That's a conversation for another day, but you know, it's, yeah, I think that they're, they're good comps. I feel like different styles, different agendas, I think, but both fun. When I was putting together the notes for the show, I was actually surprised with how few remakes platinum dunes was responsible for. Mm. Like I assumed that this would be an hour long show just for me reading off the list of remakes. <laughs> Cause it just felt like that because you know, the, yeah. the great Kirby joke in scream four is her shouting off every remake between 2003 and 2011. And mm-hmm. it felt like all of those were platinum dune movies, but they really just did like five remakes and a sequel to one remake where they do Texas Chainsaw kicks it off. They do the Amityville Horror starring shirtless Ryan Reynolds. Yes, indeed. Why that movie made a bazillion dollars. <laughs> uh, come for hot George Lutz. Um, the Friday the 13th remake, the Hitcher remake, and then the Elm Street remake, and then Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning. And that's it. And now it's like to your hmm. point, Nicole. They've done The Perch. They've done A Quiet Place. They've done the Ninja Turtle movies. They've done uh, the Ouija movies, the Ouija board movies, including a pretty good sequel from one Mike Flanagan. Mike Flanagan, yeah. Mm -hmm. out there. um, Who Mike Flanagan has already done like the best remake of Salem's Lot we're ever going to get with Midnight Mass. Um, So this is... It's interesting because this is a production company that starts like Michael Bay is like, look, rather than make $200 million spectacle movies, let's keep it lean and mean. Let's make good looking movies, but that don't cost a lot of money. And we're going to 
kind of go for name recognition. We're going to try to buy up the rights to known properties and we're going to remake them under our banner. They're kind of Blumhouse before they were Blumhouse in that you Mm -hmm. had low budget, low risk, high reward genre films. And I think it's something that that gave the uh, filmmakers a lot of creative control. Like it gave them like like Blumhouse's thing. They've said like, we won't give you a lot of money, but you're going to get complete control and get to be an auteur. And there's a lot of appeal to that. Like you don't have someone that's going to take your vision away from you. Um, to me, when I think of this movie, I think about the time when it came out in that in August of 2003, like a couple months before this hits, you have Freddy versus Jason. And that is also a really huge success. But that is like, this is your stamp, your expiration date. Like this is the exclamation point on 80s horror and 90s horror and all of those original franchises. Like now this is it. What a nice send off. Now we're going to have like a new breed of filmmakers and a new breed of film. And you start to see these filmmakers that grew up on 80s horror and 90s horror and really like the um, home video boom and the um, practical effects boom of the 80s. The folks that grew up on those movies are now coming to the forefront. So you see Mm -hmm. Alexandra Aja over Mm -hmm. in France come out with high tension. You see Eli Roth release Cabin Fever. Rob Zombie doing House of a Thousand Corpses. So it's all of these like filmmakers are like, now we're getting a crack at it. Um, so it's kind of like a fresh new face. And here you have Marcus Nispel, a French director who was known for music videos. And I think that's also something we're going to see a lot in these remakes. You get mm-hmm. directors that had had their foot in the music industry. He was probably best known for his work with C and C in the music factory. Uh, yeah, going to make you sweat things that make you go, in the hmm. Texas heat. <laughs> yeah. So those videos were massive. I mean, like they back were, in yeah. the day, I remember well, Oh man. Like, and he worked <laughs> with Madonna. He worked with, uh, Elton John. He worked with Mariah Carey. He worked with Puff Daddy. So he had worked with all of these massive artists uh, in the music factory, um, a background in painting. Oh, he was a painter. Yes. Okay. Like, is that an artist? Okay. Um, Jump in with that then. Yeah. I think that that's another thing with, especially with the Platinum Dunes, you do get kind of a stable of people that got their start doing music videos and I believe that Nispel had a background in painting which I think is really interesting when you look at some of the choices particularly in this film and you know his work with Pearl I think it's just amazing yeah I'd agree I mean it's definitely there is an aesthetic here I think some of the later platinum dune movies like there are kind of like xeroxes of the original in some ways uh where i don't think that that's what this movie is doing so i think that maybe having that background to your point that works really well um the other movie that comes out in 
2003, about four or five months before this, the first wrong turn movie comes out. Mm-hmm. And that is a movie that owes a great deal of debt uh, and inspiration. It takes a great deal of inspiration from Texas Chainsaw Massacre in that you have like a van full of kids that take a quote unquote wrong turn and they are hunted down by a family of like rural uh, backwater cannibals. Um, and Nicole, you would put a note here talking about how this these are other entries in the rural horror subgenre. So what mm-hmm. can you say about that? Well, I think, you know, obviously so many things work in cycles, trends that we see, um, themes that we see coming out in films, whatever, uh, are cyclical. Um, to your point that you, I think, perfectly framed earlier, it's based off of what you grew up watching, absorbing. And I think there's kind of this resurgence a little bit of, you know, the a term I really dislike, hillbilly horror, mm-hmm. um, because you're dealing with different aspects of now class in this time frame. And so they're kind of interjecting these kind of different issues into that formula. And so I find that really, really interesting because uh, I think that this remake really puts a spotlight on that because the issues that are being highlighted in the original are certainly not here um, because you're dealing with different types of class issues. Yeah, it's the the original movie is definitely an us versus them type of movie, whether it be kind of like the hippie generation versus like your kind of button down conservatism of the 1950s. And I think you see that with the cook, but also it, along with deliverance are like two early examples of what we would call rural horror or if we want to do degraded a bit hillbilly horror where it's like don't wander too far off the main path because if you do uh those crazy people that um you know make their own bathtub gin and moonshine are gonna get you type of deal so exactly and now i think that the commentary is much more interested in saying you know instead of don't veer off the path, it's why did you veer off the path? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, what, what are you like? This isn't your space. Why are you going into it? So I find it really, I think, interesting to see some of these things starting to pop up and continue to throughout kind of this, uh, I think resurgence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would agree. And I think we'll kind of dive into that as we go through the movie a little bit. So I want to shift gears a little bit and kind of focus on how this works as a remake. Um, I think it was a smart choice to do a new Texas Chainsaw Massacre versus just like, this is Texas Chainsaw Massacre 5. Because the reality Mm -hmm. was it was pretty dead as a series at this point. The Revenge of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre got such a minimal release in the mid-90s and had really been buried that it had been about 
13 years since like audiences would have seen a new Texas Chainsaw Massacre if they had even seen the third one at all. So it kind of made sense to give it. If you made the exact same movie, but called it like Texas Chainsaw Massacre five, the Texaning, you know, it just probably (laughs) wouldn't have done quite as well. No, the series Um, definitely needed a reset. There's no doubt about that. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, it's so each entry is so wildly different though. Um, No matter (laughs) whether it's called part four or, you know, just the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But I think the reset was just a wise way to go, no matter how you feel about remakes. I think this is one that a lot of people could say, yeah, good idea to start over here. Well, and it's so funny how it happens like every like 20 to 25 years. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, even you think about in the 80s, you know, remaking stuff from, you know, the late 50s or whatever, mm-hmm. and or in the 70s. And it's just funny how... It, even now we're seeing it again. You know, you think about mm-hmm. Scream. That's okay. We're looking at like, you know, 24 years or whatever since the original. And it's just, it's happening all over again. Yeah. <laughs> you just every 20, 25 years, it's time to reintroduce it to, mm-hmm. you know, a new audience, which it's funny. It's like, I, I roll my eyes at it sometimes. And, I, you know, the titles especially, but it's like, mm-hmm well, that was me when this came out, so I can't really get too mad about it. (laughs) I think the difference between making movies in the 80s that are remakes of like 1950s movies Mm -hmm. and doing that now, like back in the 80s, you wouldn't necessarily have had access to watch those movies over and over again. Yeah. You could watch it like if you were – Young enough, you could watch it in the theater if you were like actually old enough at that point to be making movies, or you would have watched it on like your grandmother's television on a Saturday afternoon with commercials and in four by three. But filmmakers now not ha- only have access to these movies, but they get them in like the best possible formats as well. So mm-hmm. they're oh, yeah. just like ingrained in the brain, and as viewers. You know, a movie like the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even though like 30, almost 30 years had passed between this and the remake, probably, well, except for yourself, Rachel, like you had said, like, hey, I saw the remake first. For a lot of us, like we had seen that movie like dozens of times, maybe. Um, I know that like I spent every Saturday night for a year watching that with friends at like two in the morning while absolutely smashed. Um, So, you know, it's like you have like such a clear, distinct picture of these movies where you wouldn't necessarily have had that between the two blob movies or the fly. Oh yeah. Or like the fly. Yeah. The motivation is a hundred percent different. That totally makes sense. I just think Mm -hmm. it's funny how it's cyclical. And I think I said the Mm -hmm. scream year wrong. So I'm sorry. Don't hate me. That's all right. Whoever is like (laughs) checking in there like, Oh wait, that was not 96, not 99. What are you doing? Do your math better. (laughs) I credited platinum dunes with the, uh, (laughs) with the Hills have eyes remake. So, so Hey, we all make mistakes. You know, I would have assumed that. Yeah. honestly made that assumption like when i saw that it was only those movies i'm like that can't be right like something is wrong here Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a conspiracy that goes to the deepest (laughs) the illuminati from revenge of the texas chainsaw massacre is covering up all these (laughs) remakes that 
platinum dudes is responsible for. Um, so what are our overall feelings before we talk about this specific remake? Like what are our overall feelings about these movies getting remade? Like some folks are like, just let them die and do originals. Some like, what are we, what are our overall impressions? Do we even care at this point? I mean, I am not against a remake. I, it's funny. I just did an episode of Halloweenies and we're talking Mm -hmm. about the, the evil dead remake 2013. Mm -hmm. And I, that movie really did open my eyes to remakes because that was one I went into went into with a very snobby attitude mm-hmm. and was like, you know, like, oh, my God, like Evil Dead, how dare you? And I really enjoyed that one. Spoiler alert. I think that there's a place and a like there is a reason and a logic to, uh, like, you know, doing them. I just mm-hmm. I want to see something different. I don't like the remakes that are just kind of shot for shot, you know, like Mm -hmm. just modern updates with a new cast or whatever, but Mm -hmm. it's really just kind of the same thing. Like that's not interesting to me. Like I do want to see some creative license. I want to see it taken in a new direction, whether or not it hits, you know, that's up for debate, but I'd rather, I'd much rather see somebody take a big swing and do something different. Mm -hmm. Like Suspiria is a great example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like I loved that. Like take a big swing do something new with it and then i feel like that is a reason to remake it if you're just doing it for like a cash grab kind of thing it's gonna mm-hmm. you're gonna it's it's gonna come across that way and i don't like that but there's a place for it i think for sure yeah. i'm always frustrated when there's a remake announced and you get all the bros uh responding that say Hollywood's out of ideas. Make original movies. It's like it's like it's why and this is evil and this is terrible. Like they really go over the top. Um, mm-hmm. That drives me crazy um, because there's a lot of original horror coming out all the time. You know, yeah. I mean, there really is. It, it's it's just that there's smaller movies usually. They're usually independent films. They're you got to seek them out a little bit, but the stuff that's going to get butts in the seats are the ones that have that name that have Hellraiser that are like, Oh, this is the new predator movie. Those are going to get people to watch and pay their money who are mm-hmm. not, you know, film Twitter folks, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and so I get that. Um, and I think um, some of the, some remakes are occasionally better than originals it happens it's rare but it happens and um i i think giving a modern vision to these classics can be good and you know what the original is always going to be there and if anything if the if the if it's terrible for example the nightmare on elm street remake i think most people agree most not everyone most people agree that that movie stinks but what does it do it just elevates the original yeah. You know, and if it's if it's as good or better something like the thing or the blob or the fly or something like that, people are going to be like, "Oh wow, that awesome." You know, we we got this or it, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, another great example of another terrific remake. I mean, those were all made in the late 70s early in the 80s, but um there was an, another yeah, invasion. There's lots though. of great examples. There was another yeah. invasion uh-huh. remake. Yeah. Uh-huh. But guess what? 
that 70s one is still there that's <laughs> and right. the 50s <laughs> that's right and that's right they're all there and you know and and i think you know i think stephen king you know speaking of losers club um <laughs> stephen king says you know i yeah there have been bad movies made out of my books but you know what the book still exists it's still there on the mm-hmm. shelf it's right. it's not going to change it's in print it's over it's done <laughs> What I love about Stephen King, though, is like when the movie is like coming out, he's like, oh, it's great. It's fantastic. I know. I know. I know. Like, oh, the Dark Tower is like six stars, you know. (laughs) Um, And then like when it doesn't, when it's not great, it's like, yeah, I wish we could have that one back. He's like, you know, he's out there plugging away. God love him. You know. You hear how quiet he got after, how quick he got quiet after the new fire starter. Oh, (laughs) did he even say anything? Uh, Yeah, he said something. He was like, yeah, it's great. (laughs) (laughs) Cricket. (laughs) Yep. So that's the gather over two on that one. Yeah. Um, Nicole, how about yourself? I'm a big fan, I think, of remakes. Um, as long as they're doing something to what Rachel was saying, mm-hmm. you know, bringing in a little bit of creativity, whether it's doing something completely different and using, you know, the thinnest shred to kind of, you know, use the name um, versus using, I think, what this film does, using a lot of structural pieces um, to inform it. I think both can be done exceptionally well it's just all about the intent of the filmmaker mm-hmm. like, what do you want to say with it what is the purpose of this being made um you know if if you're not actually trying to say something with it, it doesn't matter what approach you take it's just yeah. going to be a cash grab it's going to feel really hollow and it's not going to resonate with either new fans or the diehard um, you know, franchise or original fans that come to it. So um, I I feel like remakes, and, and I think also to what Brian was saying, no remake has ever hurt me. Like the, right. the original yeah. film is still very much there. And I'm, I'm one of the rare people. I like kind of the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Mm-hmm. I think there's some really Get out. interesting <laughs> things out. happening in it. And so I appreciate that they were like, you know what, we aren't going to do a shot by shot remake. Yeah. We're going to bring in a couple of different elements. We're going to try kind of toying with some different things. And I think, unfortunately, where some of those choices did not work in that one, I think here you had such a cohesive vision that it all just kind of came together in the pot. No. And it's an opportunity, I think, to have a different, more relative conversation to like, because I mean, we all know, we've all seen enough movies in our past where it's like, we love that movie, but there are some issues, right? Mm -hmm. And so it is a, there's, it's a good chance to kind of update and recontextualize some older films that maybe have some, you know, things that haven't aged quite as well. Not saying Texas Chainsaw necessarily, or, you know, I just one of my favorite movie going experiences was actually the the new Black Christmas. Sorry to anybody that's going to get pissed off about this. But I went and saw it with a bunch of friends because just happened to have connections with one of the writers of the film. And 
there was elements of it that I really liked and there are elements of it that I was like, oh, okay, I'm not sure, you know, if, if I would have done that or whatever. But when I left, when a whole group of us left, there was a group of high school girls that were there and they were so excited and just like overhearing their conversation about how much they were into it was like, it just put it all into perspective sometimes that like, maybe this movie isn't for me, but like they had that connection and Mm -hmm. I love that they were able to have that through this film, you know? So it's a good way sometimes I think to carry on those conversations, even if they are a little different or not what we expected. Cause there are, there is a lot of really important conversations that the original black Christmas has. And even this new one kind of carried on that and, just kind of reframed it for a modern, you know, a different world. But I loved seeing that. I just, I'll never forget how excited they were and how into it they were. And I was just like, yep, they, you know, that's for them. And that makes my heart really happy. I really like what you just said there. And it's something that I struggle with sometimes because like I'm a little bit older Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's important for me to remember at this point that not everything that comes out is for me. That doesn't mean I can't enjoy it. It doesn't mean that I can't like appreciate it, but there are certain movies that are going to come out that just aren't going to hit for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether that be like a remake of a classic movie, whether it be a sequel, whether it be a new kind of like piece of pop culture that everyone is like talking about where I'm like, nope, just like I'm not the target for that. And that's totally okay. Um, With me, I think when it comes to remakes, like I think Nicole, you said this, as long as you have your own thing, you want to do with it. Um, and in some ways, like I think it's important to stay true to the spirit of the original. Like if this movie took place in outer space, I'd be like, wait a minute, there's something <laughs> that is not <laughs> leather right face in space. This. Yeah. Which is just something. That's the next right one. About yeah. this. Right. Um, <laughs> but I think if you stay true to like the spirit of the original movie, but want to do your own thing with it. I think that's great. I don't like when, if a remake, I don't want to be reminded that the original movie exists necessarily. And I feel like that when I watched the Elm street remake, it's Mm. like, Hey, here's Freddie coming through the wall, but just not done as well. Here's like (laughs) Tina in a body bag, but not done as well. And everything about, that movie just kind of screamed like, go back and watch the original. And I think a lot of that was due to like Sam Bayer, the director turning down that movie multiple times. And then finally being told like, if you make this movie, we'll allow you to do these other projects as well that were like really appealing to him that never got made because this movie, like the Elm street remake, like sank like a stone after the, first week and i don't think he hasn't made a feature movie since um and he was a successful music it's not like he's not a talented guy he just took on a project that didn't you know really resonate with him and it kind of showed um i feel like this movie is very true to the spirit of hooper's original movie and it does some things really well but to your point nicole what you said earlier I think the biggest struggle I have is like, I'm not sure why it exists sometimes. Like the first movie, like there's a definite commentary 
that is going on there. There's a lot of stuff to kind of like dig into. Mm-hmm. This one is just a solid, it's a solid horror movie. And that's okay. But if you're like to say like, what is, what is the point behind this movie? I think that would be the struggle. Yeah. I don't think it has the same strength of conversation as the original. Like I think, I mean, there's plenty of extremely intelligent people who have deconstructed that original film and kind of opened my eyes to what it was, you know, some of the issues that it was dealing with over, you know, over the years. And I, there's like, there's like little nuggets of that here, but I don't, I'm, I don't know if I'm convinced that it's actually having that conversation or it's just kind of like, faking it a little bit (laughs) yeah yeah and and that's interesting too because um like like you mentioned in the notes here this is this is a key you know post 9-11 movie yeah and i and you know movies like hostel and stuff like that about torture and you know you you kind of get you know you see what's going on in the world reflected in those movies i watch this and i think except for sort of the nihilistic tone of it which, you know, kind of the way everyone was feeling. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I, I don't see it latching on to those kinds of, like the original is, there's so much in there. It's like, this is the Vietnam era. This is, mm-hmm. you know, all, all these kinds of 60s, early 70s issues, the 60s didn't work issues, all those kinds of things that you can see you know, that we discussed thoroughly in that episode. Um, but this one, I, I, I just didn't feel, I felt like there was so much flash and so little fire. Uh, Cause like I said, this movie looks great. It looks amazing. Mm-hmm. It's so well-made, but, but there are things in it. And just like, but why, mm-hmm. well, why, why that, was this choice made? Yeah. You know, except to look cool. I think one of the biggest things is like in the original, it's right. Like these kids, you know, go into their space. Like they make, you know, they enter mm-hmm. the house, you know, like, like with yeah. that kind of like, and I think that, you know, that plays into a big part of it. Whereas like these kids, you know, they didn't really do that. Like Mm-mm. it was like a series of events that led them there, but they weren't really doing anything wrong. And so it kind of shifts the, the blame, I guess, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. um, which is, kind of interesting and I guess I've never been quite sure how to unpack that but I also don't know if there is really like if it was like if it's trying to have a conversation mm-hmm. yeah like I said I'm not convinced it is trying to have a conversation it's just kind of like this is an interesting story mm-hmm. right who knows I what think, we're trying to say with this <laughs> yeah the Hewitt family compared to the Sawyers they are much more outwardly villainous like they mm-hmm. are luring people in they are kidnapping children like they're specifically going out to kind of wreak wreak mayhem. Well, it's more point. like Hills Have Eyes almost like yeah. you mentioned that like it feels more akin to that almost mm-hmm. where they're yeah, you know, they're, you know, things have, around them have changed and put them in this situation. But they're being a little bit more right. proactive in drawing mm-hmm. people into their area rather than the other way around. Right. It's interesting how much those two movies are in conversation with each other because, you know, the originals, um, you know, uh, uh, Wes Craven very much built in so much of Hills Have Eyes is inspired by Texas Chainsaw in the original yeah. 
versions. And then this remake, you know, you said kind of pulls back to the Hills Have Eyes and then the Hills Have Eyes remake kind of pulls back into here. I mean, it's it's all kind of this interesting how intertwined those movies are and they always have been. So, One of the things I appreciate about this movie, like the screenwriter, uh, Scott Kozer, who was hired to do this. Originally, the script was going to be done by Toby Hooper and Kim Henkel again. Like they mm-hmm. were commissioned. I think they did an original script for it. And as far as I know, the only thing that has really survived from that, like in the deleted scenes, there's an alternate opening and an alternate closing where mm-hmm. the character of Aaron is interviewed by a police officer um years later like she's a much older woman and she's actually in an asylum and in hooper's script it was going to be sally and she was going to be it's going to be marilyn burns and she was going to be recounting like what happened to her and then it was going to jump into the movie and i rachel i just saw you like shake your head and yeah it definitely was a good choice to excise that from this movie um it did not need to happen basically it kind of adds like a jigsaw element that didn't Mm -hmm. like the end of the movie is like leatherface slinking out the back door like eluding a swat team basically yeah it's very stupid it's i also just hate that like oh this woman is crazy after this like i hate that like reoccurring thing you know you see it in terminator and halloween it's like it's like i get that yes clearly they've been through some shit but like that doesn't necessarily mean this person is just forever i don't i agree with you except that i i will stand by my take on sally is that like her body escaped the Sawyer home. Her mind never did. Like, I just think there are some things that it's going to be very, very difficult to ever come back from. And like the amount of madness that she was exposed to in such a brief amount of time. um, I would say like, that is one I could see not escaping from from I like mentally not escaping from that where I have a much hard time buying like Laurie Strode 40 years later yeah essentially <laughs> living on a compound <laughs> right yeah. you know what I mean like that is it's just me Laurie projecting I guess I yeah. want to like it think no, that, I like, get oh it. yeah if I, I get if I went, got, went through that like I'd pull it together eventually. Right. I would not. <laughs> I wouldn't just go insane, I, right? Right. I, I, I would probably at some point just be like, you know what, Grandpa? Just I'll hit myself over the head with that hammer. Just put me out of my misery. But I think what Scott Coser did is he said, "There is no way I'm going to top the original movie. Like, can't be mm-hmm. done. I'm not even going to try. I'm not going to pretend to even do that. But what I can do is I can." take these moments from the original and do something a little different. So he talks about the hitchhiker scene in particular, where he's like, I can't top, you know, Edwin Neal is the hitchhiker. Like there's no way to duplicate that sort of madness. But what if we do with the hitchhiker, she's one of the victims that has escaped. And Mm -hmm. we see like the, what she's going through in that moment. And you even see one of the shots when she's in the van you kind of have that all four or all five of the friends looking at her, just like all of the characters in the original are looking at Ed Neal as the hitchhiker with this look of like, 
disbelief and fear, like what's going to happen here. Mm-hmm. Um, Leatherface's introduction in some ways like parallels his in the first movie, but mm-hmm. done really well and a little different in the meat hook. What do we think of like the callbacks to the original movie and how they're done here? Um, I have my own thought. I think like, I like that they do their own spin on them and they make them memorable in their own way. Brian is the person who doesn't like this movie. You know, do you, how do you feel um, about these nods to the original? Well, I, I think they're, they're fine. And, and, in, in that they're done, you know, first of all, I think that there, I have no problem with the movie taking them on. <laughs> I just don't know if they really work. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I feel so bad because I'm like, Ooh, I, because I, to, no, to, to have it, such a it. visceral reaction to it. How but dare you, Brian? How dare I? I know. How dare I know. you have an opinion? Because, because here's the thing. Brian, I, have you ever heard me talk about Mandy? Have you ever yes, heard I me? Have. I have. Okay, so I listened to that episode and I laughed and laughed <laughs> nothing, and laughed. Nothing you can say yeah. will be as harsh. <laughs> Okay, okay, because I like the idea of of this uh, victim and and sort of her wandering in the middle of the road, and um, but the way that scene plays out, I'm kind of like, do they know what they're going for? Do they know what tone they want to strike? Is pulling through her head supposed to be funny? Is it supposed to be? I I just don't feel like they know what movie they're trying to make you know and where does she pull that gun from oh i okay there's possibility (laughs) okay fair enough but i'm like she 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 gets in there and it's just like and and i i recognize i kind of feel like i recognize what they're trying to do with it but then it just feels like it just um, like when she shoots herself, that's dramatic and that's tough. And then they show him screaming and everything. And then they pull back in the most famous shot in the movie through her head, yeah. and it just sort of flops over. And it's like, mm-hmm. is it? It's like it's supposed to be done as a gag, like a laugh. No, and I'm like, I and don't I, think I, so. I, I, I do just, is. and I just like, I just find it so repellent and unpleasant and it's just which i know it's supposed to be it's a horror movie mm-hmm. but i it just rubs me the wrong way i gotta say i'm sorry I, no, that's <laughs> just really like does. so and inter- like i remember like the first time i saw that like i was yeah. just like holy shit you know like that was like the moment like i had never it's quite seen anything shot. like that like i loved it like i have it in my yeah. notes i'm like asterisk shot pulls back through head it's <laughs> like i as love a technical that. achievement uh and as a moment it's fantastic but for me tonally it's just so off to me See, for me, I I think it's like the first real scene in the movie where it kind of is cluing you into like, oh, yeah, like this movie's going to be like fucked up. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that that's the first moment where you realize (laughs) that it's going to be going to be pretty brutal. Absolutely. Leading up to it, I think it's a lot of, and you know, looking back now, like, especially for people who had seen the original, I think that was a big clue that like, 
we're not going to pull any punches. Like we're, we're going to go for it. Mm-hmm. So that, that's how I, I always kind of interpreted it. Yeah, that's... Well, I think that the hitchhiker scene in the original is really uncomfortable mm-hmm. for its duration. And I think that they had to do something different because to me, and this is just me, I feel like the hitchhiker scene is really, in the original, really important because it weaves together the families, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't have that here. Yeah, and that's another but thing that bothered me. It's not a sibling relationship. They're not from the area because we forget that. Like Sally and Franklin had family from the area. That's why they were there. So they're not outsiders in the way that we would, I think, normally conceive them. Mm -hmm. And here they're saying, no, this is complete outsiders. There isn't going to be a thread that tries to sew anything together. And Mm -hmm. the Hitchhiker scene in the original, to me, like, is really upsetting. And Mm -hmm. it's also, like, you find yourself kind of chuckling in a weird way because of just the absurdity of what's happening. When he asks for money for the photo, you're like, the fuck is this? And it's so like, it's a really bizarre mix. And I think that that with the head flop to me, it was just a brief moment of acknowledgement of just some of that absurdity because Mm. this remake sucks out any of the humor from the original. And so you get, it's, it's your one sliver. It's your one scrap. Yeah. And I, I guess part of me is like, it sucks out all the humor. So, which made me think you cast Arlie Ermey in your movie, you're going to get a laugh. Mm-hmm. Are, what, what kind of, I mean, are they, and I kept on asking myself, is are they trying to pull a Toby Hooper? Are they trying to have this be like the darkest comedy you can imagine? Because if they are, I don't get it. <laughs> you know, I, I and so uh, and, and but it felt like it was trying to be funny, but not funny. And I, I just felt like ultimately the tone just never balances for me. I never understand what movie they're trying to make as I, I, I I mean, I'm trying to put into words my reaction to this and it's hard mm -hmm. to do that. So um, people are probably yelling at their podcasting machines right now. And that's fine. Cause I, I just, I just don't get this movie, I guess. You know, I I wonder if the time period has anything to do with that because you think like this post nine eleven like there was a lot mm-hmm. of really, a lot of really dark material coming out whether Absolutely. it was bo- mm-hmm. books or movies like just the atmosphere was different and so mm-hmm. I think we were getting a lot of this kind of material coming out where it was just frustration <laughs> on celluloid almost, you know, and just sure. really kind of exercising those feelings in ways that were not necessarily pleasant. Mm-hmm. So I think with the camera pulling back through the head, 
that to me feels very much like a music video yeah. shot. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. like that is like Marcus Nispel kind of like flexing a little bit in terms of the kind of shot that he could get. I could see mm-hmm. that in a music video. Um, yeah. I like the way that that pans out. And I think what this movie does, like the original movie, you don't get the introduction of Leatherface until like the 36 or 37 minute mark, I believe. Like, it's a pretty long time before that movie kind of like really puts the pedal to the metal and, and from the, for the, from like minute 36 to the end, which is like 84 minutes total, it just doesn't stop from that point. But the first, even with the hitchhiker scene, it's a different kind of horror. Like Nicole, mm-hmm. you described it as really unsettling and uncomfortable. It's just like, you watch that and you're like, something is not right with this person. And you know that he's dangerous, but I don't feel like they're in danger in the original movie. If that makes sense, like there's a dangerous person in there with them, but I don't feel like they're in any sort of danger. I don't think he's going to be their undoing in this moment. And you have like this sojourn in it. That's almost pleasant. Like they stop at the gas station, the cook is like, yeah, just go about your way. You don't want to mess with those old house. They tour the old house. They're looking for a swimming hole. Like you spend a lot of time with them before the horror really kicks in. And what this movie does like nine minutes into the movie is this woman pulls out a snub nose revolver and blows the back of her head out. And then you pull through that and like, it's letting you know right away, like this is not going to be, the original movie like we're gonna move it and do our own thing and move at a different pace and that may or may not work for some people which i get like it didn't work for me for a long time for a long time i'm like it's okay i guess i for for me no go ahead i was just gonna i mean this is switching a little bit but i'm Mm -hmm. curious especially to ask you to because to me i do feel like something that it does well as far as like nods to the original is just the feel of it. Like when I think of the original, I always think Mm -hmm. like it's a very visceral sensory experience. Mm -hmm. Like it feels Mm -hmm. dirty. It feels sweaty. It feels smelly. And I do feel like they captured that with this one, but I'm curious just like if you guys, you know, if you all feel that that way as well. Yeah, it's definitely the sweat and the, all that is, (laughs) I, I, that all makes sense to me. The dust in the air and the, you know, even like when they're running through the woods, I th- I think this movie is beautiful as far as its look, you know? Um, but then you get down into the leather faces basement and it's drippy and it's, it, I, I don't get that. You know, I mean, it's like, where's all this water coming from? And, you know, and <laughs> I, I, there, there, it's, it's like, there's, there's a lot of things in this movie that are to me are like, we did it because it looks cool. And, mm-hmm. and it doesn't seem like there's a lot of purpose to all of it. Yeah. I guess that's, I guess that's my biggest gripe about it. It doesn't feel authentic to the seventies okay. to me either. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, Hey, I saw uh, John Lennon wearing that t-shirt in a famous mm-hmm. photo. So I'm going to put it yeah. on one of our characters, you know, I don't think these kids look like actual they 70s, don't look like 70s no. characters at all. I mean, Jessica Biel is gorgeous in this movie. I just got to say like super crush on, on, on Jessica Biel, but I, I don't know that that look 
<laughs> was very 70s authentic, you know. Right. Just saying. Kemper's goatee. The goatee. Yeah, uh, like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of this stuff that's like, you know, just set it in 2003. You right. clearly want to. <laughs> just set it in 2003. It'll be fine. That's, I, that's I would, felt that. <laughs> I, I would say, like, in terms of what this movie does, like, I don't get the same feeling of when I watch the original movie, I feel hot. I yeah. feel sweaty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like feel like I need to get up and like grab a bag of ice and just put it on the back of my neck. You watch the dinner scene and you can just like, you can almost smell it. Yeah. The head cheese in the back yeah. of your throat. And you can almost like taste that rotting food. Um, I think it's just such a good, I don't get that. Like this is very clean. And yep, they're a little bit sweaty, but it's like the good kind of sweat. It's the kind of like we had a good aerobic workout and now we've worked out a nice cardio sweat, you know? Um, Mm. And like to your point, like Eric Balfour wearing like the trucker cap and the goatee, you know, it looks like they're set in the late 90s. Like if you told me Mm -hmm. this was set in 1993, I would have been and like Eric Balfour is coming off of like roadieing for Stone Temple Pilots. I would have been like, absolutely. What if it was like a Von Dutch hat? There you go. (laughs) But what I think this movie does really, really well is it matches like the tone of the original movie. At least it does it much better than the three sequels mm-hmm. that preceded yeah. the original. Yeah, that's like a good second, point. That I can agree with, right yes. Comedy. The fourth one is bizarre, and I kind of now love it because it's so bizarre. And the third one tries to match the first movie, but it's really just like a decent but generic 90s slasher movie. This one I think goes for it. And, and I think when I started to really appreciate this movie is when it hit me that it's very much like the original in that whenever I watch it, it gets a little scarier because I know some really terrible things are going to happen to these people and I'm helpless to stop it. You cannot, when you know what's going to happen to them, it's almost worse. Um, And I found this passage from friend of the show, uh, Matt Donato, who writes for Bloody Disgusting. He does the Revenge of the Remakes column. So would you mind like reading that quote for the, uh, because this is from an article Matt wrote about what the Chainsaw remake does really well. Would you mind kind of reading that? Sure. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre somehow outdoes its source in terms of the relentless inhumanity that devastates on screen. A character's death is never just an assassination. Maybe that's Kemper's proposal ring plopping into gunky viscera run off from his mutilated body, never to adorn Aaron's finger. Perhaps that's Sheriff Hoyt's disturbing sexualization of death or his forcing Morgan to reenact the nameless woman's fatal trigger pull. It's a sleazier adaptation of derangement and public enemies as Amputee Monty gropes Aaron while she hoists him into the chair. And stolen babies are yanked from now deceased parents. The inclusion of Jedediah Hewitt as a child who aids Aaron despite the eldest Hewitt's scorn is supposed to instill a little hope. 
But that's all erased by the chainsaw eliminations and time spent watching Leatherface sew together new fleshly facial covers. Yeah. I think that sums it up for me is that this is like a dirty movie. This yeah. is like a, it's, and it's not, it's funnily enough, it, the sequel is much more nihilistic. The sequel is like everything I thought I didn't like about this movie. Like the sequel actually does it like five times to a greater degree of like five times more. Um, so, so I'm really not going to like that one. Though. I don't think you'll like the it, beginning. It's one of the only ones I've never seen. Yeah. 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 But I, I think that okay. like this, <laughs> this does a really good job of making you feel uncomfortable when watching it. What are your thoughts, Nicole? Like when you read that passage or you hear us kind of talk about what this does or doesn't do in terms of tone, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think the the theme of so many remakes and kind of the flavor of films, especially horror films, was a grittiness. Uh, you know, we're going to get real. And so they wanted you to feel, you know, the the pricks the stabs the jabs and i think you know that's what segues us so i think nicely into kind of the torture porn films Mm -hmm. of saw and hostile it's not that these are necessarily just bloodgasms but it's because they want you to feel the pain um, and I feel like this is a film that wants you to do that, where slashers want you to feel uncomfortable by it. Um, and this is like, I want you to feel uncomfortable because you can kind of experience it. You're kind of feeling it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that pullout going back to the hitchhiker scene. It's an interesting thing because we're zoom we're, we're zooming out on our group and we're experiencing what they're experiencing and seeing what's just happened. It's really about kind of putting you into a certain mind frame. And so I think that goes kind of hand in hand with what we see really taking, I think, a a top tier in terms of aesthetics and stylistic approaches for these films. But I think it really, um, you know, I, I like this film in terms of Yes, it's very polished. Um, There are at least 200 reviews of this film that always say Jessica Biel is the most 2000s looking person (laughs) in the entire world. And, you know, you can't discount that. But there's still like, you know, it was at that time where 70s fashion and things were really starting to become more in vogue in a very specific way and so i don't know it all just kind of comes together and yeah i i think that it's it's kind of a weird film in that it's trying to i think bring together a lot of different elements kind of what we're moving away from and what we're going into mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's funny brian you you were talking about like, like what's the point, Okay. which now I'm thinking about it, but it's like, there's a real senselessness to this whole film. 
just mm-hmm. like a senselessness it's true. to this yeah. to this to this violence but like to the violence <laughs> sure. like mm-hmm. even that scene where you know she shoots herself there was mm. like they were trying to help but it didn't matter ultimately right. they try to do the right thing and like let's call the cops but in the end it doesn't matter you mm. know they try like they keep trying to you know leave or whatever but so there's just a senselessness about the whole situation and just this you know this violence and yeah so i think almost like what's the point is the point in a weird way maybe not maybe how you're thinking about it i uh you know i i applaud your efforts to sway me um I, but it's the but, same. I I think we're like we're talking about like the you know the period and we see like hostile and cabin fever, but sure, it's like you yeah. know that kind of attitude, especially in horror, just like violence for violence's mm-hmm. sake, almost like that. I think has you know a lot of things around it. Yeah, you also think I about like the strangers, that. like mm-hmm. how popular that is, that. and that's very that. much the same thing. And I get that kind of senselessness <laughs> and all the of the violence and things like that. And I th- I actually think violence on film um, should be kind of senseless and horrifying and ugly and bloody. I I don't like glamorous violence in movies. It really bothers me. Whereas the way the violence is done in this, it's pretty horrifying. I'll I'll give it that. Okay. Um, But at the same time, I think there's a fair amount of we're doing this because we can, and it looks cool. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I don't, I don't see it as senseless in the sense of senseless violence, you know, um, like, like we're describing, but, um, but in the sense of, of that, but it looks cool. <laughs> so it's, 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 that's my sort of yeah. visceral yeah, no, gut reaction to it. And that's kind of what right. bothers me, I think. That's so kind of what I found unpleasant. Yeah. So let's take like a Wes Craven movie mm-hmm. as an example. Like when you watch Last House on the Left, yes, that is like <laughs> senseless violence. Like yes. that is violence that makes no sense. And when you watch that movie, I don't think there's anyone that watches that and is like, it is super cool they made that young woman piss her pants. Right. It is like super cool that they like kill these two women in like these like super horrific ways like no you feel like very uncomfortable and very unsettled mm-hmm. like it feels like you're watching something that you're not supposed to watch and you're yeah. supposed to feel uncomfortable where this is like there it's senseless violence and what i would say is and nicole like you raise like the specter of hostile um and you, we use the phrase like torture porn um uh, which i I'm going to give it like a little bit of a different phrase. Like I describe this period of horror as the birth of like the horror of hopelessness mm-hmm. in that no matter what you do, your outcome is predetermined. Like there's nothing you can do to escape it. And you see it in movies like Hostel where one thing about slasher movies, your victims have a fighting chance usually like right. you can try to run away from Jason. Chances are he's going to get you, but you can at least put up like a fighting chance against, against him where a lot of the movies from this era, there's nothing you can do. So for example, Andy's character, like I think one of the best sequences of this movie is that 
race through the uh, bed sheets. I think that is incredibly well done. I love the sound design of it where like you have like the sound of the chainsaw kind of like whipping back and forth and fading in and out depending on where the shot is. I don't quite get the physics of it in terms of how Leatherface ends up in front of. Yeah, I don't know how he gets lost. It's like, right. I know there's a lot of, do you know why? Do you know why? It looks cool. Yeah. Look cool. Yes. It looks and cool. I'll say that uh, that's that's I, how I feel about this whole movie. Hey, it looks cool. Also, looking at the inside of the Hewitt home, I don't think they're that concerned about clean bed sheets, <laughs> to be quite honest. I, I thought about that. that too for the first time. I was like, they got a lot of sheets. But like <laughs> what happened, like the shot, like you know, it is a cool shot when mm-hmm. he has his leg amputated. But at that point, yep. you're like, okay, his fate is sealed. Later on in the movie, Morgan sacrifices himself. Like, basically, he sacrifices himself for Aaron. And the way that it's done, like, he's hung up on that chandelier in handcuffs. And you're like, okay, game over. Like, there's literally nothing that he can do to get out of that situation. And I would say this is one of the forerunners of that hopelessness mm-hmm. in horror which i it, it's really hard for me to watch sometimes when you know that like you don't even have a fighting chance and you know what's coming like that to me is terrifying uh yeah. just a quick note something i think that helps it not get completely pushed over the edge into that is the fact mm-hmm. that this has a score whereas the original one it's arguable whether or not yeah. it does. <laughs> right. So it's still it still feels cinematic enough mm-hmm. that I think it removed like, you know, comparing it to like Last House on a Left, that has a very different feel, but there's some filmmaking elements that kind of contribute to that. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, just like Brian was saying, like it looks great. Like it still feels cinematic <laughs> enough that I think it helps take away mm-hmm. a little bit of that sting. Yeah. And and also with Last House on the Left, I mean, Craven's making a statement about violence in movies. Yeah. I mean, and the violence in this movie, it's just like it's violent and it looks cool. Yeah. And, and, and it, do, not every movie has to say something. That's not what I'm trying to mm-hmm. get at. But um, I don't know. It, it, it just that there's just this continual sense of that kind of thing that um, whether the point is pointlessness, um, which is a great, I, I, I think, I think I like this conversation a lot. I mean, it's making me rethink about this movie that I really just had this visceral reaction to, but um, I, I uh, I don't know. I, I I just I'm probably just gonna kind of mull all this stuff over more, um, which I honestly didn't expect because I I was like I never want to think about this movie again after fair, this morning's watch. I sorry. I think it's a fair criticism. <laughs> I think it's a fair criticism to levy at the movie. I think it is a fair criticism to say like why does this exist aside from the fact that like you bought the rights to it and you can Mm -hmm. make it and you can make a very profitable movie. Um, It can still be really well done. There can be things that you really like. Obviously there are things I think that three of us enjoy about it, but I do think it's fair to ask, okay, why though? Um, Why is this piece Mm -hmm. of art out there? Mm -hmm. 
I have no problem like taking it to task for that reason. Um, unless someone can offer up like, well, I think it exists for like this reason, like this is yeah. what it's trying to say, which I'm struggling. I struggle with like, what is it trying to say? Why did it feel the need? Like we need to make this movie at this time. Aside New from you could. Yeah. New audience. Mm-hmm. I think it was time. I honestly, Mm-hmm. I th- yeah. Well, I mean, every th- let's face it, every the reason people in ho- big Hollywood studios, at least, make movies is to make money. Right. I mean, come on, we know that. Um, let's let's not <laughs> we we can make all sorts of uh, grand gestures about art mm-hmm. and stuff like that, but come yeah. on, uh, they did it because it's a known name and they wanted to make money, and they did. Good for them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. As a piece of filmmaking. As a, I mean, as a piece of film, honestly, it, I think it works beautifully because it's, it does what it sets out to do. I just don't think it's that interesting in what it's trying to do. Nicole, you look like you want to jump in. Well, I, I think that one of the, the things that always sticks out to me is that so many of the deaths in, in all of the, I think, older films that we reference is that the deaths are kind of one and done, right? Mm -hmm. They're very Mm -hmm. quick. Um, They're brutal. um, They're bloody. They're intense, but they're very quick. We don't see these prolonged scenes of suffering. We don't see multiple- Except in the last house on the left. Right. (laughs) There's always going to be the exception. But- Of course, yeah. I think that for so many, it's really about kind of these one and done kills. The- just kind of experience of that to where I think we were just in a very different mind frame at this time and how we mm-hmm. conceptualized some of these things of violence very much like, well, I need to understand it. I need to empathize. I need to be there and also experience it in some way so you get these characters that are basically taking tours and not just seeing corpses of their loved ones but are seeing their loved ones come back um or seeing their loved ones like taken like bit by bit apart and i think that that's something that speaks very much to i think a a place that we were mentally in that time frame of how we conceptualize violence and how we reacted to it. Yeah. Yeah. Weirdly enough though, I mean, I, I think, and there is there, I can, don't get me wrong. There are things about this movie that I think are really effective. I, I think, um, for example, when I okay, Arlie Ermey as Hoyt is terrifying. I mean that that I mean I think that's kind of perfect casting for a movie like this. You know, frankly, for that period of time, I mean you're gonna get the drill sergeant from Full Metal Jacket, right? Yeah. Um, and and it makes sense to me. Um, and when he's having him reenact the the shooting. That's really terrifying. And um, it, it's, I, 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 I feel what they're trying to do. Um, so that's, that's one example. But I think ultimately, 
um, you, f- for me, I feel a kill more when I really care about the people that are being killed. <laughs> and I have trouble just believing and feeling the depth of connection between these people somehow. Like when I, like, for example, when he's hanging up there on the meat hook and she's trying to get him down and, and, you know, it's like, you know, just kill me that, that whole idea. Um, I think that would have been like a thousand times stronger if it had been like her brother or something like that. If there had been some sort of, you know, connection beyond, we spent a few hours in a van together. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just, I, I don't, I don't, I guess I don't feel the connection as deeply as I should. Um, I don't know why that is. And because I mean, we see, we see they're close. I mean, obviously there's yeah. the, 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 the engagement ring and all that kind of stuff that's going on in there. But I, I just but don't. It's more telling than showing. Yeah. I think they're better about showing it in the first one about them there just like, hang, like, like just hanging out, you know, and yeah. just kind of their natural dynamic. We see that yeah. more in the original. I think. Yeah. Yes. Let's shift gears a bit and talk about some of the characters, because I think that is in some ways one of the dings I would put on this movie. Although we'll talk specifically about, I think, in a little bit more depth, like that meat hook scene and her killing him. Because to be quite honest, like I felt watching this one more connection with those two than I did say with like Sally and Franklin. Whereas like okay, when Franklin enough, yeah. dies mm-hmm. in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like, Sally's, oh well, let's keep running. <laughs> like Sally's like hightails it out of there. Like you almost don't feel any sort of connection. Like there's no the emotional mm-hmm. impact is like I'm in danger, not my brother has been killed. Mm-hmm. Um and part of that is because it's very immediate. Like there's a giant 300 pound dude with a running chainsaw in front of you where in like that scene, I felt like she was like trying to like hoping against hope that she could like rescue him when there was nothing that could be done. And she was faced with this like really terrible choice that she had to make. But, you know, uh, Rachel, you had made a point to say like, Hey, let's talk about, this connection or this comparison between Sally as the original final girl and Aaron played by Jessica Beale here. What do we want to say about the two of them in terms of how they stack up in terms of characters or characterization? Well, for me, the thing I like about Aaron is she's given a little bit more, a little bit more agency, a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, she's a little bit more capable <laughs> You know, like sometimes it feels a little silly, you know, the thing about like, oh, I was in juvie. It's like, okay, well, you didn't have to be in juvie to learn how to hotwire a car. Like she already said like, oh, I had brothers. Like that's how she learned to like pick a lock. But just Mm -hmm. the fact that she is a little bit more capable of handling herself in those situations, like I really do like that. It's, you know, kind of like a shadow, a little tiny piece of what we get in, you know, you're next. Like, Mm -hmm. The fact that we get this, you know, female presenting character that it is, you know, capable of doing things that, you know, you wouldn't quote unquote expect her to. Like, I just I really like that about her and how she's able to 
take control of her situation and react the best way she can and actually put some thought into it, I think. Whereas like Sally, sometimes it feels like she's just like a little squirrel on the highway, which, Mm -hmm. you know, has its purpose and like she's great and she's iconic, but sometimes it feels just a little like frantic without a lot of a little bit more awareness of what she's doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't necessarily like some of the sexualizing things they do to Jessica Biel because I feel like that undermines it a little like. Yes, she's wearing a white tank top. Yes, of course, when she goes in the basement, it's completely see-through. Like, it's like, okay, come on, you guys. Like, I don't know. I don't feel like that supports what they were doing with her narratively. Kind of works against each other, which is really frustrating. Right. And that's very much like the Michael Bay of it all. Like, we have a beautiful young woman in this movie. Of course, it's she's going to get soaking wet. Like, we can talk about what he put Megan Fox through. Oh, yeah, that's... Uh, Yep. So that's a very early 2000s. Um, there are going to be horny teenage boys in the audience and yep. uh, we have to cater to them. I definitely agree with that. I mean, there's Anyways. a shot where it's like just a butt shot, you know, I mm-hmm. mean, where she's just her walking in those jeans and it's kind of like, all right, <laughs> you know. I, and, yeah, I have to know. say like the real horror <laughs> of this movie is the fact that like skirts yeah. and pants wherever that low rise like that's just right. like yeah. <laughs> it's like nobody except jessica Biel and can get away with wearing those. in 1970 you know yeah <laughs> no i know like I, yeah, 1973 just... no i'm saying that that, that i don't think yeah. they existed in 1973 yeah. like that Maybe but not i don't that, know i wasn't there i don't know um Anyways. yeah yeah i think what what the biggest difference between this and the original in terms of the group is you get to spend a lot of time with the group in the first movie. You get almost 40 minutes of just them kind of hanging out in that van and hanging out in Sally and Franklin's old home. And it's not necessarily that I feel like I know any of those characters, like mm-hmm. in all honesty, like Kirk and Jerry, like they're pretty interchangeable. Like there's nothing about them that is um, that stands out except for the fact that they're like, you know, pretty attractive, like early 70s dudes like but you there's they're pretty interchangeable. But I I get a really good feel for the vibe of that group. You kind of get a feel of where everybody fits in the pecking order. You get where everyone stacks up and you kind of get like the interplay between them a lot more. So you feel like you're hanging with a group of friends and you get that because you take a lot of time to let that develop. Whereas in this movie, because it's the only relaxing moment they have is like that first shot of them, like, you know, going off the, um, you know, the tire swing into the lake basically. And aside from that, really quick in the movie you're dumped into this horrific situation where i think this movie succeeds is that you see them pulling for one another Mm -hmm. like when Aaron comes back to the van and is like i don't know where kemper is andy is immediately like let's go you know like no hesitation like let's go find him morgan sacrifices himself to save Aaron. Aaron does everything she can to like help Andy and then puts him out of his misery. I feel like, and I think the best shot of the movie is 
when Leatherface turns in slow motion and looks at Aaron and he is wearing her fiance mm. fi- would be fiance's face. face. Yeah. And yeah. You- and well, what makes that is you see his eyes so clearly in that, mm-hmm. and that adds to the horror. Like that is so horrific, and it's so well done. And you have like the way it's shot, like the feathers are flying up from the down jacket. I fucking love it. I think like that is like truly unnerving in a mm-hmm. very good way. Nicole, what what say you? Well, I because that that happens right after he kills pepper mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and so it's framed it's not only the creepiness of the fact that he's literally wearing her like love of her life's face as a mask you have all of the like stuffing from what uh pepper was wearing floating around him and it's just really um, like she's taking that in. It's not just her boyfriend dead, but it's also this person that, I mean, Pepper was the outsider of the group. They had just kind of picked her up um, and had her come along because she hooked up with Andy. And I really. I love the dynamic of the group in the original, but there's something to me that I find really fascinating with how they frame this group, because I feel like you get to know more about each of them as people. Um, I, Jerry in the original, Kirk, they're nothing to me. Um, you I, said Jerry was the most annoying member of the group. He was. He's an Uber driver. Like he's <laughs> he does very little. And and no and that is not a disrespect to Uber drivers. You're actually doing the most. But I, I I'm not in a relationship with you. Like <laughs> I it's I there's no I don't buy that Sally and Jerry ever fucked or will <laughs> yeah, good um, point. to wear Kemper and Aaron. Oh yeah. Like they are. That's a tape. That's... They're, they're, <laughs> they are doing it. And there's that whole theory that she's pregnant, which is why she doesn't smoke the pot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so like, I love the little bits that you get to actually understand them as people so that it helps inform their dynamic and it does make their deaths a little bit more guttural because I think in the original it just comes down to Sally and Franklin one of my favorite pairs of all time but it's only about them the other two don't care um plus Pam, Pam, I think is a little bit more interesting. I, I like Pam. Adds, yeah, like she actually interjects in that original Hitchhiker scene in some really interesting ways. Has cool things to say. Um, I I like her, but the two guys, boring. To where yeah. Kimber and 
uh, Andy, just I I honestly like feel for them in yeah. in a way, and Morgan as well. He's no Franklin, but no. He's going to that. Like Pam has a line in the first movie that sets up what's to come. Which like there will be a point times today where you won't even be able to believe what is happening is real. And then mm-hmm. everything that follows, like it's such a great little, it's such a great little tip of like, here's what's going to come later on. Yeah. Morgan is giving Franklin a run for his money in terms of being like super annoying. Uh, and I think Franklin has some built in reasons why like, you know, Franklin's having a rough day. Like his day starts with him tumbling down a hill in his own piss. I mean, that's, you know, I'm going to be cranky if that's how my <laughs> when my day, not even if, like when my day start like that. Um, Morgan is just kind of a dick. Like Morgan is like, oh, you know, like STDs when like, the you know, Andy and Pepper are making out. And then like the whole thing where he sticks his arm through the car and he's like yeah. freaking out and you're like, not the time, dude. Like, not the time to pull a prank. Right Read now. the room. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But wasn't that, though, kind of a standard thing that we were seeing, not just in horror films, but in any film where you have, like, a group of friends? There yeah. was always that really super annoying, who the fuck is this person? It's character. the Shelly factor. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that this, it, like, nails it. It's very much that vibe of here's the annoying friend Mm -hmm. but we're actually just going to make him annoying and then he actually has some interesting things Mm -hmm. develop throughout the film like you know sacrificing himself essentially and the scene with the sheriff it's like he's actually a really you start off thinking that he's just going to be a facsimile of a person, but he actually does have some moments of like, Oh, I I do feel bad. Mm-hmm. He gets killed because it's, you know, like, yeah, he was an asshole, but I can kind of understand why he was with this group. I can kind he- of understand why he was like that good time guy. Like yeah. he's not going to be the person that I call when I need help. But when I want to like throw down and have a good time <laughs> and whatever, I'll give him a ring. It's going to be fine. We, we've all had a friend in our group and I have probably been that friend where it's like, he's an <laughs> asshole, but he's our asshole. And you know what I mean? Like we, we've sure. all had that kind of person in our lives. Um, what about, does it help or hurt? The fact that like Aaron is played by someone like Jessica Biel, who we would have been familiar with at the time, like through her work on Seventh Heaven, which was like a fairly popular, like even if I I never watched a minute of Seventh Heaven on the WB, Mm. like it wasn't, you know, like we said, some things just aren't made for me, but I knew who Jessica Biel was going into this movie similar to like, it's something we saw with scream and it carried over where you saw performers in these kind of like hip television shows aimed at teens 
doing like a breakout role in a horror movie, like Nev Campbell with Scream, Sarah Michelle Geller with Scream 2, and then The Grudge, and that uh, Je- Jennifer Love Hewitt in I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, um, Alicia Witt in Urban Legend. Like that was just like the trend. Yeah. I am the proponent of like horror works better when I don't know the actors. Like Eric Balfour is another example, like great character actor, everyman actor. Like he makes everything he's in a little bit better. Like I like Balfour from his like work in the Buffy pilot to uh, Six Feet Under to 24. But I'm like, oh, that's Jessica Beale and Eric Balfour. Like two incredibly good looking people that yeah i hope they're fucking because god you know the babies (laughs) they would make if they so chose like how beautiful they would be does it hurt aaron that the fact that we like know like oh this is jessica beale in a tank top and a cowgirl hat running around i don't think so i think well i mean it's you know you mean they have that person there whoever Mm -hmm. you know whichever it is because it's it's a name. You know, it's the same thing with like House of Wax. The whole thing was, you know, Paris Hilton, Paris Hilton's in right. this movie. Oh my God. You know, it's slightly different because she wasn't the lead, but she also wasn't really an actor. So, you know, no. fair enough. Um, no, she wasn't. Whereas Jessica Biel is. And I mean, I think it works because it's just that playing against type. You mm-hmm. see somebody, an actor, in a way that you're not familiar with, which I think sometimes can actually help sell those feelings where you feel scared for them. You feel because you're associating all of these character things like I did watch Seventh Heaven because it was, you know, not regularly, but it was because it was mm-hmm. on TV after school or whatever before dinner. It was like, all right, I guess I'll watch this. Um and I mean, you see the same thing like Daniel Radcliffe, too. It's not so it's not just, you know, women after Harry Potter. What did he do? I think it was an Equus or is that how you say it? Like something mm-hmm. completely different. It's a, I mean, it's a smart career move too to just like break them away and be like, I can do more than that. And you can see me in a different way. So I think that there's for me, there's a value. I never mind seeing somebody do something if it's against type i think it can be mm-hmm. really powerful i think there's a lot of actors when you see them play against type it can be unsettling sometimes yeah. which is interesting yeah yeah i, mean, I would think- agree with that statement i mean what what you said i mean that <laughs> daniel radcliffe robert pattinson elijah wood all of those you know yeah, other yeah, guys yeah. who just yeah. sort of you know they they took their franchise cred and and just do whatever the hell they want now um yeah it's like good for them um and did uh, robert pattinson spend all his twilight money and that's like i gotta do batman now yeah, well i mean he did like <laughs> but like good time and he he's also he's also yeah made some really interesting choices yeah. so i think mm-hmm. that it actually can aid the film in a lot of way because it, it, yeah it sets the viewer a little off balance i yeah. think mm-hmm. Nicole, you were going to say. Yeah, I mean, I think kind of a a stamp of this time is that when you had these actors, actresses, because mainly women, pretty much only women, that were transitioning from maybe these teen roles or family-friendly fare in order to 
make that transition into other work, it would always be, well, I need to show skin, right? Mm -hmm. I need to do this magazine spread. I need to do FHM. I need to do something scandalous in Rolling Stone. And as, yes, (laughs) Jessica Biel has a very specific look in this film, um, but she's never nude. She's never exposed. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of an interesting thing, um, especially when you think that there's such this stereotype of horror as being, yes, a girl may live, but she has to do these things or just it kind of, I think, works against some of those notions, both of the time and I think stereotypes of a genre. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, she's there's no reason that that basement should be flooding when she goes down there, except <laughs> get herself damp. But at the same time, she's still like, she's still doing her, her stuff. Right. And it doesn't undercut the fact that she's able to have that agency, that autonomy yeah. move through the space. And so I, I find that really interesting because I think she was I think around this time had taken that track of let me you know I'm in this very Christian centric TV show um, where I'm one of the stars. And so I'm going to go and do this uh, magazine spread and it's going to raise eyebrows because I want to be able to transition. Um, Like she had taken that track, but I think she had actually, you know, she had done some interesting things along with it. And I don't know. I, whenever I watch it, I'm always, there's a part of me that's like, does she, does she actually just like take off the tank top at some point? And she never does. And I'm like, oh, that's right. Because no, I mean, A, she doesn't really need to because it's sheer. But um, I, I kind of appreciate that in a time where it was let's see how far we can push some of that it actually seemed to have a moment of restraint yeah mm-hmm. it, it does feel though like nudity in horror i want to say completely ended but it kind of came to a halt with the advent of two things number one the internet mm-hmm. because i i do feel like a large a large appeal of like slasher movies of the early eighties in, in up through the end of the decade was the idea that like, is, you know, these movies, even though the audience is 50% women cater to young men as Hollywood often does. Like it caters to young men between the ages of like 18 or in 30. And a big part of it is like, Hey, you're going to have the promise of seeing like exposed breasts. And that was, almost as big of a part of the appeal to some of those movies as like the fact that you have like great practical effects and kills and yada yada. So with the internet now it's like, well, I can just download, especially early two thousands when high speed internet is finally becoming a thing. Like and more and more people could get that. It's like, I don't need to go to the movies to see that I can do that for my own home. And also the fact that you're hiring a Jessica Beale you're hiring a Nev Campbell, you're hiring a Jennifer Love Hewitt who are saying, 
you know, very specific, who a have a little bit more clout than like a, a performer who doesn't have a weekly episodic television show to fall back on for income can say like, look, no, I'm not taking my top off. Like a, I could get fired from my show for doing that for like, there might be clauses in their contract that prevents it, but also like, I don't want to do it and I don't have to do it. And I have the clout to put my foot down, mm-hmm. um, which I've really no problem with. I think my point is more because I know who Jessica Beale is. I get sucked because I know who Eric Balfour is. And I believe Pepper is played by, oh God, I'm going to hear Erica Leeson, who had been in Blair Witch, uh, Blair mm-hmm. Witch 2, and had like a very tiny bit role in The Sopranos. Like she is Adriana's tennis coach uh, mm-hmm. in those episodes. Okay. Um, that it's like, it pulls me out ju- with horror in particular. No other genre really does that, but horror. I like the an- anonymity of it. It's, you know, this isn't a found footage movie, but like purse like in found footage movies, if they had done what they wanted to with paranormal activity, which was like remake it, but do like Tom Cruise and Charlie's Theron, we would <laughs> never be covering that as a franchise in no. the future. All right. Um, let's talk about Leatherface and let's talk about this family or lack thereof. And, I think that like this is the introduction of Leatherface the Brute. And mm-hmm. Nicole, I know on your show, Bodies of Horror, when you talked about Leatherface, like this is the character you spoke of, like specifically this Leatherface. What do you, how do, how do you feel this character is depicted here in this remake? What is your impression of him? Well, I think in comparison to the original, in the original, I think, much more coded as a character with a disability, specifically, I think, a developmental disability. Mm-hmm. Here you have the backstory that's introduced with him having some kind of skin condition, and you get the glimpse of him without the mask, and you see that his nose is missing. And then you have Tea Lady and Henrietta talking about how he was bullied but he's very much a sweet boy. So I think it's really emphasizing kind of this trope of the gentle giant, which individuals with disabilities, particularly bigger individuals, people with stature, um, you know, they don't know their own strength. Um, They may not mean to do harm, but they do harm. And it's kind of bringing in some of those tropes, even though it doesn't really necessarily apply to Leatherface. Um, But I find it really interesting that you have someone that is, I think, removing the, I think, entrenched family dynamic kind of does a disservice because you also don't get that sense of support. Mm -hmm. You don't get a real sense of like, what Leatherface is about um, to where it's really about being part of his family in the original and serving kind of this role, finding his place in this family. And here you don't really have that. Um, So I think it's a really kind of complex portrayal. I like the fact that we do actually move away from the coding of the disability because I think especially 
of the time that the original came out and the fact that Gunnar Hansen had kind of studied students at a school for <laughs> students with disabilities to inform his performance, that wouldn't fly today. Um, so I appreciate that you're actually moving into something a little bit more tangible, understandable. You're putting some actual growth behind it. But I, it, to me, I also find it interesting that you introduce this idea of community, a small secluded community. You have this kid that's been part of the community, grew up with this disability. There's a circle of support around him of community members, but it doesn't really grow from there. And I think that's, it's both a really interesting uh, piece that I really like, but it also gets really frustrating because I'm like, yeah. even further. Mm -hmm. I think like this is, we talked about this a lot in our previous episode where there was an article that talked about the Leatherface in Revenge of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And they talk about Leatherface moving away from like the sleek, efficient, brute killing machine. And I'm like, that's not Leatherface, like in the original, the first three movies. Third one, a little bit. The first one, when I think of Leatherface, I think of that scene after he kills Kirk. And then he goes like running to his window and pulls the curtain back. And he's like freaked out and he's like, he has to like stem by licking his lips to soothe himself. But he's scared in that moment. Like he's not going out to actively hurt or hurt people. Like these strangers have broken into his home and he doesn't know he's defending his territory. And he's like a afraid man child. Um, I think that article is describing this leather face, which is like, he is the Kraken in this movie. Like when old Monty, I think in one of the best little scenes of the movie where he looks at Andy, he's like, you're so dead and you don't even know it. And yeah. then just starts banging his um, cane to basically he is Zeus in Clash of the Titans saying, release the Kraken. And that is what <laughs> Leatherface is here. He's his giant brute killing machine. He's a slasher villain. Um, I think that's much less interesting than what you get with Gunnar Hansen in the first movie. And even the second movie with, I think it's Bob Johnson, although I, I am forgetting off the top of my head. What do you say, Rachel and Brian? Uh, Brian, I have an idea of what you're going to say. So I'm going to save you for last. I'm going to okay. say, Rachel, what say you? I mean, I agree with what you're saying. He is used more it's like you know sticking their dog on him or something mm -hmm. like he's used differently but i also like appreciate what nicole was just saying just about kind of the the backstory on him i think is slightly maybe makes a little bit more sense and takes some of that away also some of like you know that the gender fluidity gender questioning stuff that we see in some of the later ones, especially like, it's kind of nice that that's not necessarily part of it. It just kind of takes that out of the equation of why he's doing what he's doing. Um, but yeah, he feels meaner here. It's almost, you know, he feels, yeah. Yeah. I, I, he does feel more like a slasher yeah. villain, mm -hmm. which is funny because that's how doing. like, like what he, 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 the original one is kind of categorized, but it's, mm -hmm. it's much more, 
in line with Jason and Michael, yeah. just kind of that silent, stoic machine kind of yeah. mentality, more a little bit more than the original, I think. He's cognizant of what he's doing in this movie in a way that he's not in the first movie in particular. Well, and like the first one, and like, I mean, you see it emphasized in some of the later ones too. It's almost like he's not necessarily that into it almost, but he's yeah. just kind of like in more in service to his family mm-hmm. where this one, it's like you get the idea that like, Oh no, mm-hmm. he's, he is enjoying yeah. this more than yeah. some of the other ones. But I yeah. will say though, in invoking Jason, I think again, you have characters that are defending their territory. Yeah. They're not like, yes, we don't talk of the entries where they go rogue (laughs) and pursue other territories but they're defending their home Mm -hmm. from intruders jason isn't out just finding people to kill he's like oh you you came to me well okay sorry about it yeah and I think that is very much the same thing with Leatherface. I think it's interesting, again, that you're in the remake extracting really any purpose for this group to be there. There's a very concerted and pointed reason that the group is there in the original. And I think it makes the dynamics between the two families really engaging interesting and meaningful and in the remake it just becomes something different i don't want to say it doesn't make it interesting but i to me it goes back to what you're saying about kind of the pointlessness of some of the violence there seems to be a point in the original which is like you come you're intruding in my home you didn't knock And now, like, I'm going to fuck up your day for it. And here you kind of take some of that out, but it becomes, I I think it's still interesting because they're adding in different elements of like, well, why is this happening? You have these people that are just kind of stranded, essentially waiting because they want to do the right thing. But this family is like, no, you're fucking up our game still so i i don't know i it's one of those things that i i struggle with the remake because it's something that adds a level of interest to me but is also something very contradictory to what i like about the original Mm -hmm. because i like the rootedness of it and here it feels a little bit more upheaved yeah what say you, Brian? Well, I don't know that I have that much to add, honestly. Uh, he's he's a shark. No, yeah. he's mm-hmm. that kind of slasher villain. Um, so I don't I don't see sort of the nuance of character that I see in previous versions. Um, but you know, hey, I like Jason movies. I like <laughs> I like Jaws movies, um, and this this kind of feels like. Jaws with a chainsaw. Yeah. You know, I, which is cool. I, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> only other two things I have on the characters. I like the introduction. I like how it mm-hmm. mirrors the intro. Like 
you're never going to top in any movie an introduction of a villain aside from like Darth Vader in Star Wars. Like in terms of a horror movie, like it is the perfect introduction. It will Mm -hmm. never be topped. Mm -hmm. What I liked about this movie is it does have moments that recall that, but it does its own thing. Like I love like the use of the cartoon, uh, the soundtrack Mm -hmm. that is playing to it. Um, the diegetic music that's playing to it, the way that like the cartoon syncs up where the character's eyes go big when like the blood splatters across the screen, like that's really well done. And like, that's an example of a remake putting a nice spin on the original, but doing its own thing with it. Um, I don't think they would have cut off his arm if they knew how successful this movie was. Right. You know, it's kind of like, <laughs> oh shit, we fucked that one up. Um, Andrew Bieraninsky, who plays Leatherface in this movie, seems like a dick. Um, looking up some articles, uh, his reaction when Gunnar Hansen passed away was like he posted online, boohoo. And when he was called out on it by fans, he was like, could give zero fucks, suck his dead nuts. And when he was called out further for like, dude, that is weird and unnecessary and kind of hostile. He His quote was, I was a big supporter of his and he was cool with me. Then he started going around to promote Chainsaw 3D and he started talking shit at cons and whatnot. I'm not somebody who takes shit from anybody and I tell it like it is. Folks, I want to tell you, and I've said this to clients. I'm like, when you, anyone who ever says, I want to tell it like it is, no, man, what you want to do is you want to be an asshole, is what you want to do. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. And when you tell somebody that who tells it like it is, it's like, well, I'm going to tell you like it is, you're a dick. They don't like that. Um, I originally posted a Facebook comment that said, boohoo. No tag just by itself. Read into it, read into it what you will. I never wish for his death or suffering from can- pancreatic cancer. Well, that's generous of you. What I didn't even know he had. Let's make that a bigger issue upon his sudden, sudden death. Cancer sucks worse than haters. Y'all have a nice day. Well, yes, it's true. Cancer is worse than haters. Um, <laughs> he just seems like I'm pretty sure this guy owns like a back the blue t-shirt you know what i mean like this guy seems like i don't know a real fucking clown yeah so let me tell you how it is Hmm. Uh, (laughs) yeah this guy sucks (laughs) like this is exactly it's funny he came here to a film festival one year and was like a guest and it was he was such just a fucking train wreck Mm -hmm. it was insane like during the q a he was like talking about how like i'm the real leather face like this is how leather face is like that other leather face was a you know i'm not even i almost said something not very nice Mm -hmm. but like was just saying like we're gonna use the p word it's all right (laughs) he was just like you like saying some like really awful Mm -hmm. things and he Mm -hmm. was drunk the whole time there was like a time we had to like go pick him up and his girlfriend was not clothed, which was, you know, whatever, but it was just like so awkward. For the Q&A? And, just... Well, like we went to go pick him up and he was like, 
drunk and then their hotel room like clearly they were like just in the middle of something or mm-hmm. i don't know it the whole thing was just so awkward and he was so arrogant and it's you know and there was like it just sucked because like there was really people there that were like excited to meet him mm-hmm. you know because he did like a photo op thing and like multiple mm-hmm. people were just like myself included it's like i don't want a picture with this guy mm-hmm. like afterwards which yep. just it was one of those things where like he just told on himself and there was like so many yeah. people that were just like, I'm good. Like this yeah. guy sucks. Yeah. So Bites anyways, awful. it's By not contrast, just a one time thing. Like yeah. this, yeah. this is how he, he is. gives that vibe. By contrast, Gunnar Hansen, I was fortunate enough to see like a midnight screening of Texas Chainsaw Massacre at a theater in Boston and Gunnar Hansen did a Q&A after the movie. And it went for so long that the theater had to beg him to stop talking because they wanted to go home. <laughs> um, but he was like so sweet and kind and generous with his time and so appreciative of the fans and appreciative of everybody that had worked on the movie. Uh, it was like one of the best experiences I've ever had watching a movie and like seeing someone like talk about it after. So, well, yeah. And I think that there's some like Gunner was obviously, I think a little snarky towards the new guy, but I think that's what you do. Right. Like, of course this is, mm-hmm. this is the character that you made famous. Someone else is coming in yeah. You're kind of a side character in this film. Like, yeah, you're going to. He's out there promoting the new movie. It's like yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis when Halloween 2018 was coming out. She's like, oh, yeah, H2O. Like, I did that for the money. Like, this is the right. real deal right here. Like, that was a kid. She's like on record. Like, she was dissing herself to promote. Her new move. You know what I mean? Like, that's what you do when you're on the... Yeah. Gotta like, get asses in seats. He... I I also, like, I, I don't know. I, I feel like there's, you know, throwing some barbs and being to that level where it's not just pure venom versus what he seemed... Andrew seemed to be doing, which I think is just... In bad taste, and I think a lot of the behind-the-scenes footage and interviews with him, he's always like, "I was born for this role. I was born mm-hmm. to wear the mask." Like, check yourself because I don't think you understand. You're not Lady Gaga. You're not born to this. <laughs> <laughs> like, I would never want to be a person that's like, "I was born to play someone that saws people in pieces." Right. Like, that's not no. I was born to do good things in the world, hopefully. And maybe acting is one of them. Mm-hmm. Cool. I'll, I'll act, but that's not what I was born to do. Like, show some fucking restraint and yeah. calmness and chill the fuck out. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, needless to say, and I think one of the things... He said in the comments, it was like, hey, like someone commented, like, you never would have got a chance to play this role if it wasn't for Gunnar Hansen creating it. And he's like, well, I played it twice without him. And you're like, oh, for fuck's sake, dude. Um, Moving on from him, I think we've given him too much of our our thoughts at this point. (laughs) Um, 
the only other thing I say, like where the biggest flaw to this movie is that, and I don't think any of them have gotten this right since the second movie. This isn't a family. This is a collection. Like this is Jim Rose's circus sideshow. Like you have Emery doing whatever he's doing. Um, you have, so he's supposed to be the role of the cook, like that kind of parallel, mm-hmm. but you have none of the humanity of the cook and none of that kind of conflict in his, you can see Jim Saito, like his wrestling with his soul. Like we really shouldn't be doing this, but eh, we got to eat and it's kind of fun. Um, and you feel like Leatherface and the hitchhiker and Jim's in the cook. And then in the second movie, chop top stepping in for the hitchhiker for nubbins you feel like they're a family like you feel like they love each other but hate each other you know what i mean they mm-hmm. the, the, they you get that close-knit like they're not explicitly evil they don't know what they're doing is wrong they just think they're living their life and this feels like a collection of people that are meant to be on display in a circus carnival Mm-hmm. Like see the kid with the weird teeth. See, um, you have like this trailer and I think it's like you have a woman that looks emaciated and then a very large woman and you put them to there for a very stark visual contrast against one another. And that's the only reason those two characters exist in this movie. They don't really further it. You could excise that completely and you wouldn't lose anything with this movie it just feels like oh you have a double amputee for the sake of having like a double amputee it doesn't serve any purpose agree <laughs> yeah it's hey weird. you guys already know how i feel so yep. yeah. <laughs> it's like oh you thought you know having a character in a wheelchair was like great in the first movie well this one he has nothing from the knees down you know what i mean like we have to be it's like the dan cortez mtv sports let's get extreme so (laughs) that's kind of how i feel about i just feel like that's where the movie if there's the biggest flaw of the movie is i don't get that close like the closest thing to it is the scene where like the grandmother is uh or the mother is ironing the sheriff's pants like that's the one only time it really feels like a family other than that i just feel like this is a collection of people that are meant to be paraded across the stage at Lollapalooza. i agree again i think if there had just been and maybe this is just me always desperately trying to find like some really cool idea or theme that's kind of percolating behind kind of a curtain. Mm-hmm. You know, you have different senses of family unity in these different time frames. Yeah. And so I, there could be some commentary about that to where, you know, this is what family looks like now. Family is this, much more you know chosen family a family that comes together in a very kind of different way than what we saw in times past but it doesn't really allow itself to explore that instead you just kind of put these characters together without any kind of real 
cohesion. And growing up in a very rural area, the characters kind of make sense to me. Like, there is kind of this interesting interplay, diversity of, of folks and how they all interact together and this sense of a small group coming together. I understand that. I I think it's what makes, I think, some of the elements of the film less impactful is that it just doesn't seem to really come together um, to say anything truly interesting or profound, which it seems to maybe want to do, but then pulls right mm-hmm. back. Yeah. 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 I hear mm-hmm. that. I am going to skip the torture point. I'm going to save that for the next movie because I think that's a better fit. Plus, I know that I'm going to need to fucking dig deep to find shit to talk about with that movie. So, last <laughs> thing for tonight, I think. I think we've hit. I think we've kind of like covered the. Unless there's anything that I haven't brought up or we haven't brought up, I think we're good. Let's just very briefly talk about the legacy of this movie and its final thoughts. I mean. It is a massive success. Uh, it makes about $106 million on a $10 million budget, or a little bit less than $10 million. Translating that into like current terms, it basically made Halloween 2018 money. It made, mm. it would have been about $160, 170000000 million now. So, Dang. but where like Halloween 2018, I think, is like revered. I think maybe two or something. Yeah, movie. I that don't movie, know. Like, I, I, I see ew. I see a lot of especially after Kills came out, I'm seeing a lot yes. more backlash more against back. all against all of the yep. new it was ones here. it was anticipated, I feel like. It was mm-hmm. like highly yeah. anticipated. Yeah. Whereas and this one, some, I don't like this one was mm-hmm. but not just not to not that to level, that extent. Yeah. Not to like the blitz of like we got like a, a, the push that that Halloween 2018 yeah. got, and I think Crazy. the immediate glow, like the in the immediate aftermath, like there was a glow to that movie. Which I think you're right. I think Kills did dampen that, and I'm not even I'm not really looking forward to ends at this point. I have a bad feeling about Halloween ends, um, but this it's a massively successful movie. It definitely jump starts remake craze of like the mid 2000s it really was from like 2003 to about 2010 i think the nightmare in elm street remake kind of like sinking like a stone after the initial weekend is like the nail in the coffin of remakes um that in like halloween 2 like rob zombies halloween 2 underperforming is like that's when the trend kind of dies out. And if listeners know, I think Halloween 2 is a brilliant movie. I think it's fucking awesome. I agree. This actually, speaking of like Gordon Green's Halloween, like made me go back and watch Zombies Halloween. And I was real. I was like Brian in this episode. That's how I was on the Halloween remake. And now I'm like, you know what? It's trying to do something that's different. It's swinging. It's trying to make its own thing. And it doesn't always work. But I appreciate that effort. Mm -hmm. I think a lot more than like, hey, let's put the three masks from Halloween 3 in it. So fans can like point at the screen and go, I know that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I would rather have that. So audiences love it. Critics, not so much. 
I'm going to read a brief quote from Roger Ebert here. And I have to admit, I think that Roger Ebert's review, I was really watching Ebert and Roper at the mm-hmm. time. And I, I think he might've gotten in my head. I think he might. Yep, he might have. <laughs> yeah. A little Roger in there. Um, a contemptible film, vile, ugly, and brutal. This is not a shred of reason to see it. There is not a shred of reason to see it. Those who defend it will have to dance through mental hoops of their own devising, defining its meanness and despair as style or vision or a commentary on our world. I want to make shirts that go hard with nothing but like zero star Roger Ebert quotes, because that is a fantastic piece of writing. It is. <laughs> it is. It's like Ebert like gives no fucks when he hates a movie. He just goes in. Um, and the general consensus was like, all right, it looks good. Why does it exist? And I think, you know, commerce <laughs> um, is the reason it because there is, you know, commerce. But fans like it. It gets a B plus overall rating. Uh, and when you watch the documentary, like the making of, like they show like fans that are going to a screening of the original and they're like, yeah, we know there's a remake coming. We don't really have any good thoughts about it. like they think like they're you know i know how it's like brian you said it's usually bros like there were these two young french women and they were just like and they might have been plants like maybe they're marco nisp marcus nispel's nieces or something <laughs> but they were like cute little french accents like we think this movie's gonna suck like there's no reason and you know it didn't i think you know but what do you all feel is the ultimate legacy of this movie i mean I think- it it's like a huge it's another it's like kickstart for horror. It's so funny how often horror has to like prove itself as like a mm-hmm. viable cash machine when like clearly everybody knows that. But it's just so funny how often people are like, whoa, this movie made so much money. This horror movie is horror like back. It's like it never went anywhere. Like we see this mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. And it's just funny that this was that movie of that time that kind of reinvigorated this it's, particular time period for the genre. It's three years after a movie shot 50% on a handy cam made $250 million. Like, whoa, yeah. bar right. can make money. It's like how quick we forget. Brian, yeah. yourself. Well, I, I think despite my complaints of it, that, and, and speaking of which, speaking of the Blair Witch Project, I don't get the found footage ending and beginning either. I don't get it. I don't get it. I think they said this is something we can do. They yeah. talk about like we yeah. wanted to make yeah. it look real. They wanted to play yeah. into like the true story of Ed Gein. Like sure. let's throw this in. Yeah, it's not a hit. It's not a hit. Yeah. It's, it doesn't work. Yeah. So anyway, side note. Um, but it does, it kickstarts this whole remake craze and without that we wouldn't have scream four and i love scream four so kudos to it for giving us scream four how's that wouldn't have kirby i wouldn't have kirby we wouldn't have that great speech that she gives right there where she just blasts through them all yeah i do think it opened the door for a lot of things to get 
greenlit during that period. Yeah, and I think there's there's some really interesting remakes that came in its wake. I mean, you talked about um, Dark Castle, which I think Dark Castle is so interesting because they weren't remaking movies from the 70s and 80s. They were making movies from the 50s. Yep. They were doing William Castle movies. And I'm like, Uh that's that's my shit. I mean, that's my world that I focus in. House of Wax, 13 Ghosts. 13 Ghosts. They were fun. They were fun. Yeah. They were like a much different, like you had said, mm-hmm. Rachel, the flip side to like this extremely nihilistic version of horror mm-hmm. is them doing like really kind of fun. I would call it like date night horror. Like sure. I took a date. I mean, went with my girlfriend at the time to see 13 ghosts. Like we had a lot of fun going to see that movie. So yeah. Nicole, how about yourself? Well, I mean, I think you, you really have to think about how it shaped ideas around remakes because this was very popular and it was only a handful of years before that you have Psycho come out. That is this shot for shot remake that no one liked. Um, And I think to be able to put so many butts in seats to see a remake not that long removed, like not that far removed from that. And I mean, Psycho was made by a really notable director with clout and esteem and prestige. So I think to not only just jumpstart kind of this trend of remakes, I think it helped people start to be like, oh yeah, remakes are fine. It doesn't... You can do something new too. Like you can break away from just doing a shot for shot remake. Exactly. And like you can interject new ideas and it can be about something that's different from the original. So I, I appreciate it on that level. And the fact that I can go back to it a lot and watch it and still enjoy it, I think says a lot because I don't know, there's, a handful of films from that era that I really struggle with. Cause I'm like, wow, yeah. no, what? Yeah. 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 Why? <laughs> um, like there's just like, it's not that it's no reason for it. I'm like, it was the wrong reason for it. So I, I don't know. I appreciate it. Do I think that it changed a game? Do I think it came in and revolutionized anything? Probably not. No. But I think it's a really solid film. People enjoy it. People who enjoyed the original film and claim that as their favorite film, they can like that one too. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't hurt anyone. I, yeah. I do think the aesthetic of this movie is carried off a lot into the into the 2000s though. Because I mean, think about stuff like the, the drippy, grimy movies like this i mean saw and hostile and mm-hmm. i mean those are the two that come to mind yeah. right off the bat but i mean you do kind of have that aesthetic of this movie that seems to carry over into so much of horror throughout the decade so yeah. daniel pearl talked about that in the commentary to the film because pearl came back to shoot this after being the cinematographer on the first, he said he was convinced to do it when they promised him he wouldn't have to shoot the same style because mm-hmm. he said, I've already shot that way. Like, why would I want to duplicate it? Um, 
And he was like, nope, you won't have that like verite style. We want to go for something different. And I think that there are some beautiful shots in this movie. We talked about like the, the mask wearing some of the framing, like the scene when the van like pulls in front of the tree, I think is like a gorgeous little shot. And Pearl talks about the look of the movie, like how like the print was like bleached. Mm. And he said that he said it's good in some ways, but like where he felt he shot like a really incredibly deep blue sky. He wanted that to really pop because he felt like that would be a great contrast to what they would go through later. Mm. And when he saw like how it came out, he's like, look, it looks makes it look good. Like it gives it a darker tone and feel but you lose it a lot of the saturation is gone Mm. at that a lot of the color is wiped out um it's a very good looking movie but you're right like this is going to be the look of horror movies for the next 10 years like they're Mm -hmm. going to look like this and it's also you know this was a dead franchise like this was a movie that dead and buried Halloween Resurrection had come out a few years before that had underperformed. Unless you had Freddie and Jason together in a movie, their individual efforts, their last individual efforts underperformed. So all of these iconic franchises were dead. And then this remake comes out and says, look, not only can we make like a decent little profit, like we can, we're a blockbuster, like, you are making more money based on the cost to return ratio that Michael Bay is making on something like Armageddon. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden your eyes start to pop and you're like, there's, you know, like Rachel, like you'd said, like horror is always profitable, but it's not always like blockbuster, like holy shit, life changing. It's like, we can do this. And I think that's, it's not a movie that is like important because of its aesthetic. It's like the first movie kickstarted a whole subgenre of horror. And to me, that first movie is like the greatest horror movie of all time. Uh, it's not my favorite, but it's right up there. But I think it's the greatest horror movie of all time. This is not that it is important for different reasons. It just like for the next 10 years, a lot of things are going to follow this template. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them aren't good. A lot of them are like piss poor, but I don't think you can blame this movie. I think that a lot of care and effort went into like, let's make this its own distinct animal. Let's make it its own distinct thing. And a lot of movies that follow it, including the next movie we're going to talk about. Don't really do that. So yeah. Mm-hmm. That is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. Now for everyone's favorite part of the show, the plugs. Brian, <laughs> this is what people fast forward to. Yeah. They're like, give me the last five minutes. I want to hear about the movie. I want to hear what Brian is up to with movies for life. Well, and you're writing right now. What's going on? Well, um, if you want to find any of it, you can follow me on Twitter. I recently changed my handle because something about having my first, last name, and middle initial didn't feel right anymore. So I changed it back. Uh, it to is, your home address. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so um, you can find me at BrianWaves42. So it's like brainwaves with the I and the A switched. It's a bad joke. Okay. Um, <laughs> but 
uh, anyway, so there's that. Uh, my writing lives there. On Movies for Life, uh, we just dropped our episode on Whiplash, and this is Spinal Tap, which is a lot of fun, and uh, <laughs> mostly me um, quoting lines from Spinal Tap. But um, anyway, so that's been fun. Uh, we've got... This is a horror podcast, so I'm going to mention, I'm going to plug our uh, October, which is going to be a couple of underrated Wes Craven movies and a couple of Halloween anthologies. Uh, We've been having guests on to talk about some of their favorite movies. Uh, I've got a couple of horror movies um, in that list that I'm already recorded that I'm going to try and have ready for October as well. Um, And yeah, over at Bloody Disgusting... um, Gods and Monsters column, uh, classic horror, uh, pre-1970s in general. This last month was uh, Island of Lost Souls from 1932, uh, which was the first and still the best version of the Island of Dr. Moreau ever filmed. So anyway, that's and I've got uh, a tribute article coming up on the original Scream Queen. uh, And I'm gonna let you imagine who that is and <laughs> when that drops in september you'll you'll find out that'd be fey ray right that would be it yes <laughs> look at that <laughs> yes um rachel what do you have you talk a little bit what's coming up with halloweenies and sure. what are you working on for your vinyl column oh yeah so okay so i was just on an episode of halloweenies we were talking about evil dead 2013 um so it's funny. I've just been like in remake mode lately. It's very exciting. And then, yeah, I have a monthly column over at Dread Central called Terror on the Turntable, where I talk about horror film scores. I got to be honest, I don't know what I'm doing next month yet, but I'll better think of that. But my last one was on The Hills Have Eyes and Don Peake's score for that, which is just a really just a fascinating story and just, I don't know, just one of those cinema stories and his involvement. It's just the nerdy part of me. When you dig beneath the surface of any film, there's just so mm-hmm. many incredible stories about the people involved. And this is a really interesting one. Mm-hmm. And then um, on Losers Club, I was just on an episode uh, for From a Buick 8, which apparently Stephen King listened to on his daily he walk. Did. So daily walk. I saw that. Yeah, yeah. So that's like not terrifying at all. <laughs> no. But you know, so that happened. So I don't know if it's good enough for Stephen King. Maybe it's good yeah. enough for somebody else interested in the well, book too <laughs> do you know who else listened to that episode no this yeah. guy Sick. so even better and <laughs> i went and like downloaded the book after to listen to because i it's really a, loved your discussion book. on it like it's i that's a period of king that i kind of had stopped reading mm. so i'm really looking forward that's why i love the loot like halloweenies and the losers club are like just two of the best shows out there. Like I absolutely love both of those shows and pouring one out for my friends at Halloweenies who recording plans got all screwed up with evil dead rises being so good that it's not getting dumped straight to video, but getting a theatrical release. I know. And let me tell you, there's something that episode hasn't dropped yet, but I am already that, all very wrong in that episode because so I was like, yeah, I think it'll come out this year. Sure. Why yeah, not? Excellent. <laughs> it's not. So, um, Nicole, how about yourself? Yeah. So I am plugging away on the biweekly episodes of Bodies of Horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, just dropped an episode on John Kramer, Jigsaw Prime, talking about how it's an interesting. Uh, disabled villain arc 
how his cancer diagnosis and journey as a cancer patient informs so much of that franchise Mm. um, and kind of informs so many of his, I think, choices um, for good and bad. And, you know, him being such a staunch patient advocate, um, really uh, heartwarming, touching stuff. Um, So, yeah, just drop that episode. Um, And, yeah, outside of that, um, getting ready to do an episode over at Anatomy of a Scream for the Good for Her series, talking about hard candy. So very (laughs) about that. Um, Mm -hmm. If I excited, petrified, Um, but excited because I really, really love that movie. Um, And I think it's really interesting. And I've really dug the good for her series that's been going over there. I think it's so fascinating to have different people kind of sound off on what makes films speak to them in a very, kind of specific way but not like what what uniquely speaks to me about a good for her film how do i define this for myself so i've really loved those episodes so excellent yeah excellent and listeners as you know you can find also find me over at the psychoanalysis a horror therapy podcast uh it's september has kind of kicked off our month where we're kind of covering religious fanaticism and cults and fundamentalism we have uh a really fun talk on the wicker man Mm. that is going up uh, a few days after this comes out uh we'll be covering blade as a comfort horror episode i believe we also have saint Maud and noriko's diner as our other genre movies covering the topic on psychoanalysis. You can hear me with Jen and Lara to talk about that. Um, If you kind of liked our talk about like Jessica Biel and kind of how young starlets had to be a little more risque and expose more of themselves, which we talked a little bit about here, uh, listen to our episode on Perfect Blue, uh, where we talk about toxic fandom and we... Uh, talk a little bit about that in the episode as well. So you can get that wherever you get your horror therapy podcast. As for us, like, so I am going to try to put the pedal to the metal for the next couple months. I really want to finish. We have four chainsaw movies left, and I really want to try to wrap up by the end of September because I would love to make October, a return to Haddonfield. We have Halloween ends and Halloween kills to cover. I think I want to go back and revisit Rob Zombie's Halloween and maybe do a Halloween versus Halloween episode where we look at that versus uh, David Gordon Green's movie. Um, that's something I'm putting. So I really want to get to all of that in October and also do some other fun stuff. And I'll say, like, You know, we're 150 or so episodes in and the back of my head, I'm like 200 is a good number, like 200. We get there. That's a pretty good body of work. And I'll put our 200 episodes against any other. With the um, 
crew of regulars we've rotated, and I'm going to blow smoke up all your asses right now. Sorry. Between Rachel and Brian and Nicole, and I know like they're not here tonight, but like Devon and Jessica and Steven joining us on the regular along with our regular guests, like I think we're going to just blow right by that number. Um, like I'm like, oh, now here are all these other movies. Like I feel completely rejuvenated uh which is fucking awesome because i love doing the show um so yeah we have a lot of good stuff kicking up i'm just like super lazy about planning but we have like uh texas chainsaw massacre like i think this is the peak right here like i will say like after this movie it's kind of downhill in terms of the quality of movies but the one thing about this franchise is they're all like, even the ones that aren't great are fun. Like if you don't think I'm going to be horny on the main for Alexandria Daddario in Texas Chainsaw 3D, like I'm sorry. She is one of the most, yeah, it's going to apologize in advance, folks. Sorry if I say some things that I shouldn't, but good Lord, she's so beautiful. Anyway, that's what we have coming up. Follow us at Pod and Pendulum, or, or sorry, Pod and Pend over on Twitter. Please rate, review, and subscribe to us. Uh, we've gotten some nice ratings recently. Got a couple of nice five star reviews. Um, one saying like, "Adam, thank you very much for saying any podcast will go into all five critter movies is great in my book." Thank you. Someone has to do it. Mike is a great host. Ah, shucks, and is killing it with the Texas Chainsaw movies fun podcast to listen to thank you adam and what that does is it brings new listeners to us it helps people find us it strokes my ego all of those things and the last one is really the most important one make me feel good about myself (laughs) um but thank you for listening we hope you've enjoyed this discussion uh this was a fun one to have you know this was a really fun one and we'll be back very soon you know, you needed to know how did Uncle Monty end up in that wheelchair? Uh, how did Leatherface get his chainsaw? These were the burning questions that this movie left behind. So we needed to know those answers. And the Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the beginning, it's going to answer the questions you didn't even know you had. And we'll be back next week to discuss that.